This episode of the MJ Cast is brought to you by Audible, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks. With over 400,000 downloadable titles ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, fiction, and self-development. Head on over to audibletrial.com slash themjcast and sign up for a one-month free trial and to get your free audiobook. Show Audible and the MJ Cast some love. That's audibletrial.com slash themjcast. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I want to see you! <laughs> I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. We become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Charles Thompson, it's been a while since you've been on the MJ Cast. How are you? I'm very well. How are you doing? Well, I'm okay, except I've just woken up to the news of you texting me that um, <laughs> Leaving Neverland's won a BAFTA. Yeah, I mean, it, I fully expected it to win but it's still disheartening, you know, what you're going to do. I just, last night, I watched Don't Fuck With Cats for the first time. I hadn't seen it. I watched the whole thing in one spurge. It's just so much better. <laughs> it's just so much better than Leaving Neverland in every way, in terms of the way it's made, in terms of the story. It's just spectacular. So it just seems ridiculous that Leaving Neverland has just beaten it to a BAFTA not only that, but the category it won in, I think, was called Factual Series. <laughs> and we we know Leaving Neverland is clearly based on a range of lies. Well, certainly it, it contains a number of demonstrable falsehoods and inaccuracies and, and a lot of deceptive editing. So it is quite a poke in the eye that it's won in a, a category called Factual. At least at the Emmys, it won the documentary category rather than a category that specifically said factual. Mm, absolutely. Now, I, I think last time we sort of caught up on the MJ cast, you, you hadn't seen it. You still had not seen Leaving Neverland. And, and when we would talk about it, you'd say things like, well, it's not really necessary to see it because you understand all of the court documents and everything like that. But since then, you've, you've watched the film, right? Yeah, I watched it pretty much a year ago today, I think. I watched it in July 2019, Angela, who's been on the show before, came down to stay with me for a couple of days and we sort of bit the bullet. Neither of us had seen it and we watched it together. You know, I can totally see how somebody that didn't know anything about the case would be taken in by it. But of course, when you have a strong working knowledge of the cases already and then you sit down to watch it, you immediately spot all of the problems Particularly, I mean, I thought probably the most uh, egregious section from my perspective was the section where they're talking about the 2005 trial, because just every single element of what they portray that trial to be is just completely wrong from the way they portray the prosecution case to the way they portray the defense's tactics and the way the defense presented itself to the way they present the media coverage, to the way they suggest that Wade Robson's testimony was like the thing that saved Michael Jackson and was really important. 
everything about that trial that they show you in that TV show is just complete crap. It's just rubbish. And so when you get to a section like that, which is probably the trial is my strongest area of knowledge, and you see just how mendacious it is, the way that they've presented it is just, you just go, well, how can, see, as somebody that knows that trial inside out and back to front, I now know that nothing this TV show is telling me can be trusted. Nothing. Because everything they've told me about that trial is crap. I totally see how somebody that doesn't know the cases will be taken in by it. But as somebody that had a strong knowledge of the cases going in, I'm just sitting there and every 10 minutes I'm going, well, that's bollocks. Well, that's wrong. Well, that's half a story. They've missed that bit out. So it was an interesting watch, but uh, not persuasive to me. No, and I and I felt the same way. It was an eerie watch for me because I thought it was quite well made in its ability to put the viewer in this emotional state, connecting with these two guys speaking and and, and especially the things they were using like the film score and 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 a lot of the footage they were cutting back to from the time. It's a very carefully crafted piece to manipulate somebody who doesn't really know the facts behind everything and and that's one of the problems that we have I think as a community is that well I mean of course Danny Wu's great documentary is is out there now for people to watch on Amazon square one but it sort of only focuses really on the um the original allegations probably the most important ones to dissect I'd, I'd say but but still all of these facts aren't in one spot around all of the allegations and I think that's a problem. That is a real problem because when people see Leaving Neverland, it's, it's, they're so easy to con- deceive. I think it is a problem. I think uh, that's very true. You know, it's a, it's a shame in a way that uh, Square One was limited to 93, although, of course, if it was going to extrapolate out into the other two cases, it probably would have ended up being about seven hours long. But, yeah, it's, uh, it is annoying that the information is not readily available in one place like some sorts of three episode series or something like three sets of two hours or something along those lines because it, it it really is needed yeah absolutely now listen uh when all of this sort of went on because i remember that we're going to go back here and talk about when it all started with leaving neverland um this is a an episode where we're just totally going to ditch any news that exists at the moment because you're here because you've got this insane kind of story that started taking place (laughs) around the time of leaving Neverland that I really have wanted for a long time to sort of get on the record everything that's happened to you since then and I mean like I remember the day that we found out leaving Neverland was happening it really wasn't that long before it it was shown at Sundance, I'm pretty sure. I remember receiving the information from you as a text, actually. You texted our group chat and you were saying something to the effect of this is going to be absolutely devastating and really bad. And I was skeptical. I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's just another doco. We'll see. It probably won't get any attention. And we've been through worse with the trial. And I was pretty hopeful, but... um. <laughs> boy were we wrong or was i wrong <laughs> well we were both wrong in a way because you uh well you and a lot of fans were kind of going oh you know storm in a teacup this is nothing and then i was saying this is the end this is the end of michael jackson now you just need to prepare yourself because this it's over and it ended up being 
somewhere in the middle, you know, so I was fully anticipating that Michael would be banned from every radio station, he'd be pulled from every music channel, Thriller Live would have to close down, you know, that was, I just fully expected that that would all happen, because we were in the middle of the Me Too moment, and it didn't take anything, really, for somebody to get cancelled in the Me Too movement, you know, it just needed, like, an anonymous tweet from someone saying, someone touched my leg, and that was the end of their career, <laughs> you know, so yeah. um, it seemed like something this bad would absolutely just trash the whole Michael Jackson world, but it didn't really pan out that way, and and so it, it was worse than a lot of fans were expecting, but it was not as bad as I was predicting it would be. It was an interesting moment, in a way, because I remember when it aired in the UK, I was not watching it, but what I was watching was the tweets. I was watching the hashtag for the TV show. And it was amazing how many people on Twitter were saying, I just don't believe these guys. You know, it seems like hammy acting. Where's the evidence? There were a lot of people, that you know, not Michael Jackson fans, just general members of the public on Twitter. I'd say that the split, the divide on Twitter as it was airing was about 50-50 and that was better than I was thinking it would be in terms of um, audience response. Even uh, the mother of um, Jamie Bolger, who is one of the UK's most famous and prominent and respected child abuse campaigners, she came out and said this is obvious rubbish and I don't believe it for a second and it's damaging to real victims. So it was a real interesting thing. to. It seemed to have more of an impact in America, I think, than it did elsewhere. I mean, look what happened in France. Dan Reed got completely trashed when he went on TV in France. They just made mincemeat of him. Very therapeutic videos to watch when I go back and see them. <laughs> Shout out to Hector. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't just Hector. It was like the, the hosts. You yeah. know, when you watched... I was talking to Taj a while back, and we were talking about when he came over. So when Taj came over to do his tour of all the TV shows in the UK in the week that it was going to air in the UK, Sam and I went up and had dinner with him at his hotel. You know, over the next few days, we were watching it playing out on all these different TV shows he was appearing on, you know, Sky News and so on and so forth. You're watching them, you're watching these interviews, and... The presenters just don't know what they're talking about. So Taj is on TV saying, you know, these guys have just completely changed their stories. And the hosts are going, yeah, that was in 2005. They've explained that. They've said they were still under his spell. But now, and Taj is going, no, that wasn't in 2005. I'm saying that since they came forward and started claiming abuse and suing, they keep changing their stories. Why, why are you talking about 2005? These, so the people that are doing the interviews in the UK just didn't know what the fuck they were talking about. Um, whereas in France, that TV show that Reed went on to in France, it was like, who are these? You know, those hosts were fantastic. They'd, they'd all done their research. They all knew the case. And um, it, they just made, you know, the media in pretty much every other country look completely amateurish. 
Yeah, it was embarrassing to watch Australian uh, media, American, UK, all of it. It was really, really embarrassing to watch the amount of airtime that they were giving previous Neverland employees that a- had Adrian chunky. Mc- yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was the 60-minute stuff in Australia with Adrian McManus was and the way they edited those ads together to be super sinister, it was you know, really terrible. And and I can't really help but reflect and think that this really was a concerted organized moment where people were just jumping on this bandwagon to drag Michael Jackson over the coals. I don't know how organized it was, but it was certainly something that I think a lot of mainstream media felt pressured to back. Yeah. So there was the, you know, in America in particular, and I alluded to this when um, I went on the John Ziegler thing, his podcast thing, because he brought it up. I wouldn't have brought it up otherwise. But in America, there was something else going on, which is, as John put it, a sort of a Game of Thrones type war between two sets of powerful people. In America, the story is not really about Michael Jackson leaving Neverland. In America, it's it's a power play involving a whole bunch of other stuff. But, you know, in the UK, I mean, the media has just always despised Michael Jackson. You know, they just have. So any opportunity to stick a boot into Michael Jackson, they're just going to take it. It doesn't matter even if they know it's complete bullshit. I mean, there's nobody, there is nobody in the media that thinks Adrian McManus has any credibility. There is not a single person in the media that does not think Adrian McManus is full of shit. They just don't care. It's just good, it's just, it's good. It's good for ratings, it's good for clicks. They don't give a fuck that she's a a moron and that she's been caught lying over and over again and that the evidence is in the public domain that she just talks out of her arse all day long. They don't care. They know she's full of shit, but they don't care. It's really irritating when you start seeing them wheeling out McManus. That's when you just go, oh, for fuck, you know, like, this is barrel scraping now. I mean, this is a woman who sells what look like small bags of pubic hair on eBay (laughs) um, and says that it's Michael Jackson's wig extensions that she pulled out of his plug hole at Neverland. And she uses her Neverland ID badge as, as proof of authenticity. This is the kind of person that they're dealing with. To present her as being in any way credible is just despicable. It's just absolutely despicable. Not one person involved in putting her on the air or interviewing her and putting it in a newspaper or a magazine, not one of them believes that she's credible. They just don't care. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... Tough. I always come back to this point in my head where it's like, well, of course, all of these things happening to Michael Jackson are terrible. But I mean, I just finished reading Dwayne Swingler's book, who was, you know, um, like a manager for a few months at Neverland. And he and, you know, we could go back and forth on the accuracy of that book. But he, he gives stories in there about being in the Neverland kitchen very early in the morning. And then Michael would wander out of his bedroom in pajamas with with um you know, a young boy or whatsoever and, and to get to get breakfast and all of this kind of thing. And I mean, it begs the question, like, to what extent did Michael really bring some of this stuff on himself? If he would, I mean, even if there was no sexual activity involved there, you know, yeah, it's not yeah, wise. I mean, he absolutely, no, especially after 93, you know, pre-93, pre the Chandler allegations, you could say, 
well, you know, he lived in a bubble, he was naive, he didn't know what the real world was like and whatever. But after, to continue doing it after 93, it is, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous thing to do and it is indefensible. And I know I'll get a lot of angry tweets from people for saying that, but it is indefensible because it's it's just so irresponsible to himself, let alone to anyone else, to, to put yourself in that position where having been accused, you are now making it really, really easy for somebody else to accuse you again. It's just a stupid thing to do. And you can totally understand why people on the outside would say, well, I think it looks dodgy. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with anybody saying, to me, this looks dodgy. That's a perfectly acceptable and reasonable position to take. What I don't like is when people start using the word guilt, when they start saying that he is a child molester or that he's obviously guilty, that kind of thing, because that is fallacious logic to say, oh, somebody, somebody, you know, has sleepovers and therefore that makes them a predatory sex offender. That's just a stupid position to take and it's not a defensible position in terms of evidence. So my position always on this issue has been he, he like anybody else would hope to be he is entitled to be presumed innocent unless and until proven guilty and when you put these uh, allegations under a microscope they don't hold water now you know is it possible that something happened of course it's possible i mean you'd have to be again it's completely fallacious logic to say that it's impossible that something happened but is there any positive proof for you know anything anything to say that it did happen beyond just somebody saying that it happened well no there's not there is nothing that says it happened there's no physical evidence nothing so if you want to if you want to you know listen to stories about michael spending his nights in a room with kids and say well to me that's shifty to me that's dodgy to me that's not right that's completely reasonable that's a completely reasonable position to take but i my where i don't like it is where people start making factual conclusions for which there is no evidential basis that's what i don't like and it's not just about michael jackson it's just about the erosion of the presumption of innocence more widely as you see with things like the me too movement where it just takes an allegation with absolutely no supporting evidence and sometimes with a significant amount of evidence that contradicts the allegation and yet it still ends up being treated as fact and people still end up being treated as guilty that's that's what i don't like when it gets into that area mm. yeah i agree and it's certainly a trend where people are especially on Twitter these days. It's a really groupthink where people aren't taking the time to slow down and look at the ins and outs of a of an allegation before making a judgment on it. They're just jumping on what's expected of them to say. And uh, it's dangerous. It's dangerous groupthink and it's affecting people's lives. Well, especially in the media, because you have a problem in the media at the moment where the media is dying, you know, it's losing all its funding because... People aren't buying print. The internet has created this age of entitlement where everybody thinks that they should have access to everything for free. So they'll just complain all day, every day about the lack of great journalism. But then if you say to them, do you pay for any journalism? They'll go, fuck off, I don't pay for anything. So 
you know, imbeciles. So what you have now is a media which is driven by clicks. Clicks, that's all they're obsessed with is clicks, clicks, clicks. And so who generates clicks? Generally, not news journalists. News journalists don't generate that many clicks for national papers. The people that generate clicks and headlines and controversy um, are columnists. So you have a media, unfortunately, at the moment, which is dominated by people who have opinions for a living. And they have opinions which are not supported by any evidence, really, most of the time. Not supported by any logic, by any knowledge of the area on which they're commentating. So you have this stupid situation where when something like Leaving Neverland happens the media response is dominated by navel-gazing, virtue-signalling columnists who are all just piling in to try and write the most controversial opinion that they can write. Particularly if they can piss off Michael Jackson's fans, then they know that that will generate thousands and thousands and thousands of clicks, and it will generate the article being shared all over the internet because Michael Jackson's fans will keep sharing it. They'll be, keep going, look at this disgraceful article that's been written and blasting it all over Facebook and Twitter, which just generates more and more traffic. So the Leaving Neverland response is driven by attention-seeking columnists. It's, there's almost no journalism on display whatsoever. From the moment it was announced that it was going to premiere at Sundance, all the way up until now, which is well over a year later, there is no journalism. Where is the journalism? There, there just isn't any. There's been none. It's just all been opinion, 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 and let's give five grand to Adrian McManus to come and say some bullshit, like, oh, I thought I was going to get murdered, or, you know, just some bullshit, whatever, you know, just make it up as you go along, Adrian, we don't give a fuck. You know, that's the attitude. So... It, it, it's just rubbish. The whole media response is rubbish, and it's because it's all driven by this obsession with clicks, because clicks are gold to the media at the moment. Is where they see their future. Their future is in clicks. So the whole media response was just a disgrace from top to bottom, pretty much apart from Piers Morgan, that French TV show, Mike Smallcomb, John Ziegler. I mean, there's probably about four others or something, you know? <laughs> and you. You're forgetting yourself in that mix. Come on, don't be modest. Well, it would be egotistical <laughs> to say me, but, um, you know, I but say. yeah, I mean, it's, um, the, yeah, the media response was just absolute horse shit from top to bottom. It was just a disgrace. It just it is a real window on the shit-filled dumpster fire that the media is turning into at the moment you know as a result i must say of of entitled people on the internet who refuse to pay for any journalism i think we really are seeing the dumbing down of uh, <laughs> civilization no doubt charlie look let's let's go back in time again to when leaving neverland first came out i don't think it would be a stretch to say that well, from the outside certainly it looked like your world was really turned on its head. You were, you were on all kinds of BBC radio um, shows and different things, and it affected your career and everything. So let's go back then. We'll go to May in, in 2019. Talk to us about what happened to you then. Yeah, so in May, something very bizarre happened, which was that I received an email inviting me to speak 
at UCLA in Los Angeles at some event that they were doing. They were doing some event all about fake news and truth-telling and journalism and all this malarkey. And I got, <laughs> got an email just saying, do you want to come to UCLA? We'll pay for your flight and hotel. I was like, yeah, all right. So yeah, I ended up going to LA. All expenses paid. They flew me out for four days and I only had to be at UCLA for like two hours. So I ended up just hanging out with Taj and with Tom Mezzaro and just doing my own thing, really. And then just one evening went down to UCLA. The whole thing was very weird. When I was invited, it sounded like I was supposed to be sitting on the panel. So I get there to UCLA School of Law. It was a joint event by UCLA School of Law and the University of Southern California School of Journalism. I go in this little room and there's like nobody there. Uh, there's about three people in there. And the chairs are all set up with the name tags on. And there is no chair with my name on it. So I'm like, well, this is weird. <laughs> <Okay>. um, so, <laughs> like, am I in the right room? What's happening? Because they told me that Linda Deutsch was going to be there and there was no seat for Linda Deutsch. I just thought, well, this is kind of weird. So one of the people that did have a chair who was supposed to be on the panel was Taylor Hackford, who is the director of the movie Ray, the Ray Charles biopic, which won an Oscar. Also the director of one of the greatest music documentaries ever made, which is called Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll. It's a documentary following Chuck Berry as he prepares, I think, for his 60th birthday. I think that's what it was for. It was following him as, as some big event was coming up. He was doing these huge concerts to celebrate this, whatever the anniversary was that he was celebrating. And he let Taylor Hackford follow him around with a camera for a couple of weeks. And it's just this fantastic documentary about what a dickhead Chuck Berry was, but also what a genius he was. Because I knew I was going to be there with Taylor Hackford. I I got my DVD of Hail Hail Rock and Roll out. I have I love it so much. I have this like special edition box set with a book in it. And then I left it in my bedroom when I was packing my suitcase. I forgot to put it in the case. So I was gutted when I got there. So as I'm arriving at UCLA, in the car park, oh, that's Taylor Hackford. And then he turns his car around and in the passenger seat of the car is Taylor Hackford's wife, who is Helen Mirren. I was like, holy shit, he brought Helen Mirren. So I'm in this room, like, going, what the fuck's going on? And then Taylor Hackford and Helen Mirren come in, going, what the fuck's going on? So... I ended up just chatting to Helen Mirren for a while. She comes from the same town as me. <laughs> she comes from the same place as me. I mean, albeit uh, she left many years ago and she now lives in America. But her family is local to where I live in South Essex. So uh, I just had a chat with her about growing up in South Essex and so on and so forth. So I end up sat on this little side bench thing. And so I'm sat there, I'm very early, I was really early, because I'm always early for everything. And then this guy called Jonathan Steen Sapir comes in the room. He's actually the lawyer that's working for the Michael Jackson estate on the Robson Safechuck lawsuit. And he comes in the room, I forget who he was talking to. There was somebody else in the room from Michael Jackson's estate. And he comes in the room and goes, oh my god, there's a woman on the guest list for this event and she's suing us. I said, uh, 
oh, oh who's that and he said her name's vera sarova and i was like <laughs> you're fucking kidding me so because vera sarova is a student at ucla or was she's not now at the school of law and so of course when this event gets advertised that they're doing this thing about journalism and the law and truth telling and whatever so she puts her name down so of course they're all freaking out now because vera is going to be in the room it turned out that the lawyer for the casios also was there i'm trying to remember what his name i think his name is brian friedman i think he has the same name as a choreographer i'm pretty sure it's brian friedman so he was there also so Vera's just freaked everybody out and she's not even there yet. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm sat on this little side bench and the whole event happens. So John Branca is on the panel. Weitzman is on the panel. Taylor Hackford is on the panel. And then some academic people who I didn't know who they were. And a lot of this panel thing was just a lot of old absolute bollocks, just academic stuff. So like people saying... You know, there were academics on this panel who were literally saying, well, I don't think it's a problem, really, to make a documentary which is completely one-sided and contains loads of inaccuracies, because the great thing about documentary is the other side could then make their own documentary and tell their side. And you're going, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, if somebody made a documentary about me, it was full of shit... I couldn't afford to make a documentary about myself and put it out. You know, what are you talking about? So I found these people really irritating. And the more I was listening to them, the more irritated I was getting. And then one of them started wanging on about fake news and how there's no such thing about fake news. And it's just been made up by Donald Trump. And I was like, oh, fuck you. So I got up and, um, and <laughs> I spoke for about three minutes about fake news and then sat down again. And then that was my whole contribution to the whole thing. So I'd been flown out to L.A. for like four nights, five days to attend this event. And I spoke for about three minutes. So to my right was sat Linda Deutsch, you know, who I love. I love Linda Deutsch. She's just a legend. And next to Linda Deutsch was this guy. His name was Michael Levine or Levine. Does PR for the Michael Jackson estate, right? So now... There's another guy in the room also called Jim, who works for the Citric Company, which also does PR for the Michael Jackson estate. So I said to this guy, Levine, who was sat next to me, I said, um, so why does the estate have two PR companies then? Like, what do you do that Citric don't do and vice versa? And Mr. Levine, he goes, um, that is a very good question. And then just stands up and walks away. I was like, what the fuck is going on? So, like, <laughs> it was like, like the Twilight Zone. So, yeah, everything was so weird. Like, I, I met this lady called Karen, who worked for the Michael Jackson estate, also called Karen Langford, who I spoke to her for like a minute. And, um, and uh, I said to she, she's like a spy, like, she doesn't give away any information at all. So, I said to her, so what do you do at the Michael Jackson estate then? And she said, well, I used to know Michael. Like, uh, okay. Um, so, she's, she's the archivist. So, she's their archivist. It's not a hard answer. <laughs> well, I, I said, uh, oh, so um, uh, what did you do for Michael then? And she said, well, that kind of depended on who his manager was. Okay. <laughs> so, like, so she's just like a, a wall. Like, you just can't get any information out of Karen. So... Yeah, it was a very strange evening. 
was it running through your head like you're the guy that spent years on Twitter and our podcast criticizing them fairly heavily for their decisions <laughs> and here you are in the room with them it, uh, yeah it, it absolutely was crossing my mind um <laughs> I was a bit worried about it I wasn't sure what to make of it to be honest I wasn't sure what to make of the whole thing the whole thing just seemed very bizarre i mean if somebody messages you and says do you want to come out and speak at ucla then you would have to be demented to say no but the whole time it was happening i was kind of going this is just so weird and none of what's happening makes any sense so what happens next is the whole event breaks up and i'm like i must take a picture with helen mirren and i must meet linda deutsch because she came in late so the event had already started when she sat next to me I wasn't able to say hello. So Linda Deutsch is talking to Helen Mirren and I'm kind of like edging my way in thinking uh, they're probably going to think I'm such a geek, but I don't care. And then Helen Mirren grabs me by the arm and goes, oh, Linda, you must meet Charles. He comes from the same place as me in England. So I now get dragged (laughs) into the middle of Helen Mirren and Linda Deutsch. And Helen Mirren goes, oh, you must come to one of our meetings we we have this club called the morons it was something like they had this club where they all get together like once a month or something and just rip the shit out of donald trump it was something to that effect and they call themselves the morons they have moron meetings and then linda's going oh helen the best moron meeting was that one when you just won the academy award and when we all came over the academy award was in the middle of the table i was like how have i ended up in the middle of this conversation this is insane (laughs) um so (laughs) so i ended up uh taking a picture with linda and helen and um and taylor and then across the room i see vera sarova so i just go over and and say hi to vera There was a guy there also called Sanford Richmond, who is uh, an academic who hosts a podcast, which I'd been on. So we were chatting for a while and then uh, Vera and I went and um, had a drink in some bar. I forget what the bar was called. It was like a a student bar in, uh, in Westwood, just down the road from the university. So all in all, quite a strange little trip. Oh, man. And did you actually speak to John Branker at all, the the co-executor of the estate? Oh, literally for like maybe two seconds. Somebody said to him, this is Charles Thompson. And he said like, hello. And that was it. So that, you know, that was it. And I was like, uh, you know, this is just too weird. I don't really know what to say to John Branker. (laughs) Oh, I know what to say to John Branker. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is just like (laughs) so weird. Before we left, Weitzman and Vera were having this conversation. So there's this really weird relationship because Vera obviously is suing the Michael Jackson estate over the fake songs, the the Malachi songs. Howard, of course, is the estate's lawyer. So you would think there would be real animosity there. But actually, he seems to really quite like her. They sort of have a like a, a respectful opposition situation going on so they both are enemies of one another but they respect the legal maneuvering of one another particularly vera because of course she's fighting this whole thing herself she has a couple of pro bono lawyers but she's writing a lot of the the arguments herself and all that kind of stuff so they seem to have this weird kind of respectful hatred of each other 
The other thing that was quite funny was the guy that was there representing... The guy that was there, Brian Friedman, who is the, the lawyer for the Casios in the Casio lawsuit, he got up at one point and made a point in the discussion. And he was talking about how if you have a, a sausage... I can't remember the exact analogy he made, but he says, like, if you have a sausage and it's only 20% pork, then you have to put that on the label. So... Why, if people are making documentaries, alleged documentaries, which contain information which is not correct or is not fact-checked, then people should be forced to advertise it. You know, if something is not legit, then people should be forced to advertise the fact that it's not legit. <laughs> so, of course, at the end, I have no idea who this guy is at this, at this moment. I have no idea what his name is, that he's the Casio's lawyer, nothing. He's just some guy that sat next to me. So... At the end of the event, Vera comes over and says, um, so, uh, Mr. Friedman, so if something's not legit, some, then people should be forced to advertise it on the packaging, should they? He's like, yeah, yeah, I don't see why not. She's like, yeah, hi, I'm Vera Sarova. He was like, oh, my God. So <laughs> <laughs> That's the best. <laughs> oh, and I'm watching this whole exchange like, well, that was weird because I didn't know who the fuck he was. And then Vera and I just went, as I said, went off to a bar for about an hour and just had a chat and... Because I'd never met her before. So that was nice to meet her. That was May. That was uh, That's May. May into June. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. When you were telling me all of that at the time, I was just gobsmacked that you had ended up in the one room with all of these people that you had been <laughs> commenting on and indirectly sort of, well, directly criticizing over the years. And I just thought, man, that must have been uncomfortable. But Well, anyway. you know who else was there? But again, I didn't know who he was. It didn't ring any bells at the time. It was some guy called Jampole. Somebody oh, Jampole. Oh, Jeff. Yeah, Jeff. Who's something right. to do with the MJ Online What's it? Whatever that That's is, right. you know that Twitter account. But again, I, you know, I, I don't pay that much attention to all the fan stuff. So somebody said Jampo. I was like, I think I know that name, but I don't know why. I think it was Damien. I said it to, and he was like, "What the fuck? Oh my god! Why didn't you ask him about X, Y, and Z?" I was like, "What? Who is he? You know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know." Yeah, yeah, he's in. He's in the head of the agency that's um, being contracted to run Michael Jackson's social media, or something I see. like that. Interesting. Mm. Okay, so June, you get back. I get back from Los Angeles. I work one week. The editor of the newspaper group goes on holiday, so I was quite senior in the newsroom. I was the chief reporter and news editor. So, and how long had you worked at the Yellow Advertiser? Seven and a half years, something like that. Joined as a junior reporter. By the time I left, I was the chief reporter, news editor. So when the editor went on holiday, I became the editor. I became the acting editor. So I come back, I do one full week of work, go into work on the Monday, which was the 17th of June. So somebody showed up from head office. And also what was weird was the editor came in. So the editor, Mick, he never took holiday really he he was entitled to five weeks holiday a year and he was lucky if he took three he very rarely went off work but when he did i took over so he's on holiday and yet shows up at the office i knew something was up so we get taken into a room and told that the paper's not making enough money and so it's closing down and not only is it closing down but it's closing down immediately so the newspaper that you're working on right now 
this week's newspaper is the last newspaper we will ever print, and every single person who works at this company is going to lose their job. That was June the 17th, so June the 19th, we sent the last papers to the printer, and that was the end of my tenure at the Yellow Advertiser. It was, it was over. Now, I got severance pay, of course, and I had savings and whatever, but it was a bit of a shock. I can't say it was a surprise in the sense that when I took that jo- <laughs> when I took that job, the guy that hired me was called Steve. He, at the time, was the news editor. The evening, he rang me to tell me I'd got the job. He said, uh, I'll be honest with you, we could be closed in a year, but if we are, then you'll have had the best year you've ever had. Because, you know, the whole regional media industry has been on its arse ever since the recession of 2008. It never properly recovered. You know, of course, it's competing with the internet and all these other problems as well. So it was always precarious, the the yellow advertiser. So I was lucky to get seven and a half years out of it. <laughs> but, yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, but still, but, it yeah. would have been a, a giant shock to the system. Like, I mean, one day you've got a job and the next day you're um, essentially unemployed. It was, it was, yes, it was not a surprise, but it was a shock to the system that it happened that quickly. You know, Mm. you would think that there would be like rumblings about it or, you know, but it just was like, we came into work one day and they said, right, it's gone, it's closed. It was quite shocking. I got called, somebody contacted me and offered me a job at another newspaper, but their sales pitch was not convincing to say the least. This was their sales pitch. Okay, imagine imagine this. Somebody comes to you and offers you this job. They say, uh, I know where you've been. It's been all about quality and you've been putting out real quality stuff. But the thing is, you know, for us, it's all about quantity. Imagine that. <laughs> imagine somebody <laughs> pitches you a job in that way. And I was like, oh my God, I don't think so. So I just went freelance. Before I worked at the Yellow Advertiser, I'd been freelance because I had graduated in 2009, into the middle of the recession, the banking collapse, and regional media was just not hiring. It was so rare to see a job, particularly locally, because I didn't want to move halfway across the country. You know, I just didn't want to. I just went freelance and was quite successful as a freelancer for a couple of years until I took the job at the Yellow Advertiser. The downsides of being freelance are threefold. So number one, you have no guaranteed income. Like, if I was freelance right now in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, I would be fucked, because most freelancers are fucked at the moment. Number two, you have to chase to get paid so much. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So I wrote something for... I was going to name them, then I won't name them, but I wrote I wrote something for a very well-known music magazine in the UK years ago, about ten over 10 years ago now, and it was such a piddly little thing. They commissioned it, but it was like a a couple of hundred words. It was worth about 80 quid or something. And I had to chase them for about 18 months to get paid for it. It was ridiculous. And then the third thing that's shit about being a freelance is you have to do tax returns, which I cannot do, and I hate them. I hate them so much. So I decided to quit being freelance in 2011 and go and work at the Yellow Advertiser, but... As soon as the YA closed, I just thought, oh, while I figure out what I want to do, I'll just become freelance again. Mm, And mm. um, immediately, you know, off the back of leaving Neverland, of course, 
immediately get contacted by somebody that works for this guy in America called Michael Shermer, who I had never heard of, to be perfectly honest, but he, it turns out he's quite a big deal. He's the founder of the American Skeptics Society, and he's a, an author and quite a respected broadcaster and writer. Somebody that worked for him contacted me and said, Michael Shermer is putting together this new podcast series where he'll take popular subjects of the day, popular subjects that are dominating the news, and he will apply the laws of evidence to those subjects to figure out what the truth is. One of the first things that he wants to do it with in the wake of leaving Neverland is the Michael Jackson allegations. And, you know, we've been watching your work and um, do you want to write it for us? So <laughs> so I was like, yeah, okay. So within about two weeks of the YA closing, I had a, a job, a freelance job, which was for a couple of months, you know, on a monthly salary so that's what I did and uh, in those couple of months I wrote the equivalent of, I would say it was the equivalent of about half of a non-fiction book it was so long I wrote a treatment for three podcasts you know as we were talking about earlier about the need for there to be a series of documentaries or podcasts or somewhere you can go that handles all of the cases together and that was what I wrote. I wrote a treatment. I think it wound up being something in the region of 60,000, 70,000 words, where I did one section on the Chandler case, one section on the 2005 trial, and one section on leaving Neverland. And it was a good few months' work and, and great fun. And it, then it never got made. <laughs> so, so you know, I did all that work and it just, I mean, the next thing I heard was months later that they were now trying to pitch it for TV rather than a podcast. And I just have no idea what happened at the moment. So, but yeah, that's what I did for a couple of months, which was pretty interesting. It was, it was literally a full-time job. I was doing it five days a week for a, a couple of months. Did you have to sign anything that said you couldn't use it independently if you wanted to? No, I didn't. And so there are plans to use some of it in something else. Yeah. But I don't really want to go into that because it just never got made. I don't know what happened. I just have no idea. You know, I, don't, I kind of don't care because I, I did it and got paid and then that was the end of it for me. But uh, so if it never gets made, it's of no interest, you know, so it's no skin off my nose. But um, yeah, that was kind of a... It was a, a bit of a life, not a lifesaver, because it's not like I was dangling on the precipice of bankruptcy. I was in quite a good position, particularly after I got my severance pay. But it meant I didn't have to worry about job hunting for a few months, at, at least. Yeah. And then in the middle of doing that, so I'm in the middle of, I've just written the the Chandler thing, which was, I forget how long, but something like 25,000 words long, something in that region. And I get an email from some guy called Danny Wu saying, oh, hi, I'm making a documentary about the Michael Jackson allegations, the Geordie Chandler thing. Would you be available for a telephone interview? I was like, yeah, OK, you know, so <laughs> do this. Like, yeah, whatever. So, and then uh, and then I should have read his email properly, but I didn't. And it turned <laughs> out it was for a, I just assumed he meant a podcast i just assumed when he said do you want to do a telephone interview i'm making a documentary i just assumed he meant an audio documentary of course it turned out to be a movie the next thing i know i've been invited to a film premiere at the chinese theater on the hollywood walk of fame 
So that was a whole <laughs> other adventure. This is the craziest story. <laughs> it's honestly. Yeah. Uh, it's just ridiculous. So yeah, I get contacted by Danny who says, uh, oh, this, the film I've made. I'm like, film? What? Fi sorry, what? So it's like the film I've made is uh, been accepted into a film festival and is having its premiere at the Chinese theater Hollywood Walk of Fame, which is like a world famous theater. And I just thought, oh my God, you know, like this is so surreal. What a weird year I'm having. So I get invited back to Los Angeles. Of course, it's a big decision to make. The question I keep asking myself is when is the next time I'm going to be in a documentary that's screening at the Chinese theater on the Hollywood Walk of Fame? I'm going to guess on the 21st of never. So um, <laughs> I probably should go. And so I said to Danny, do I get a plus one? And he said, yeah, yeah, of course. And so I uh, rang Tom Mesero and said, hey, do you want to come to a film premiere? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I ended up taking Tom Mesero, which caused a bit of a stir when we arrived. But of course, before all that, Tom and I went for dinner with Elise from the MJ cast. For lunch, I should say. We arranged to meet. I went into a lot of effort and, and roped in a number of people to try to find a good restaurant to book for lunch with Tom Mesro. Because Tom, a lot of people probably don't know this, but Tom's grandfather was one of the most famous restaurateurs in the history of America. His name was Eugene Leone. And uh, his mother was called Mama Leone. She had a restaurant mama leone's it was a huge restaurant something like 600 tables in times square in new york and was chosen as one of the 10 restaurants that changed america and so tom grew up in this dynasty of famous restaurateurs and um, so he knows food he knows good food <laughs> yeah especially italian food because tom is descended from uh, italian immigrants so he always likes to eat Italian, and I was like, oh, God, I need to find somewhere. So we were going to go to somewhere called, like, Musso and Frank's or something. It turned out they had been open for a 100 years and had just closed for the first time ever for refurbishment or something. So that was <laughs> of out. Course. And then everywhere we, we tried to book was all jammed up, couldn't get in there for whatever reason. So eventually we find this restaurant that's very famous and well-respected, and and I get there about 10 minutes before I'm due to meet Tom, there's sort of a commotion going on outside the restaurant. I can't remember what the restaurant was called. So I, I'm walking towards the door and this lady says, do you have a reservation? I say, yes. And she says, I'm so sorry, but we've had a power cut and uh, all of our equipment has stopped working. Oh that includes our fridges. So uh, that includes our refrigerators. So uh, although we're not going to be able to serve you today, unfortunately, here's some pudding. And then just puts a tub of pudding in my hand. <laughs> uh, what am I supposed to do with this? Right. So I'm just wandering around the street with a pudding. Like, what the fuck am I supposed to do? With you know, there's no bins anywhere. In the end, I just left it on their windowsill. But um, okay, we we need to pause I, so, here. We need to we're going to get back to what happened to the rest of the story. But you yeah. need to we need to clear something up that's been going on on Twitter between Elise and yourself. I need you to explain the difference between English and American pudding. I don't know what American pudding is. I don't know. In England, a pudding is like a sponge cake type thing, typically with raisins in it or something. 
What is an American pudding? I have no idea. I think Elise was claiming that I had a fondness for tea and pudding. Right. But, of course, there is no such thing as tea and pudding. It's, it's tea, tea and, biscuits. and biscuits. Tea right. and biscuits, yeah. So I think Elise just confused biscuits with pudding. Right. Okay. Good. Let's get back to the story now that we've cleared that up. <laughs> so you've got, you're walking through the streets with this pudding. With a pudding. And so, yeah, so I just jettisoned the pudding, just left that there and thought that I'll let them deal with it. I didn't really want it, so they shouldn't have given it to me. So I meet Tom, then we meet Elise, and we now have not long before the film premieres, so we have to kind of find somewhere to eat lunch on the fly. We end up in this, in the Hollywood Highland Shopping Plaza, which is right next to the Chinese Theatre, in this crazy little tea shop, which seemed to sort of be pretending to be an English tea shop. There was nothing remotely English about it. It's a restaurant as well, and they serve all the like salads and sandwiches and all kinds of stuff. Uh, they came over and took my food order, and I said, so do you do, um, like, you know, orange juice or anything like that? I'm like, no, just tea, just tea. So, uh, <laughs> like oh, God, you know, what? Yeah, I don't I don't want like, you know, a salad and tea. That's just weird. <laughs> that um, is weird. That's so nice. it is weird. Why would you have a salad and tea? I had a chicken Caesar salad and and I don't want tea with that. I just ended up with water. But yeah, it was a very strange little place. They were sort of very weird with us because they were going, "Do you have a reservation?" "No." "Well, well, if you're quick." You know, it was all it was all a bit like yeah, there's like fucking 17 empty tables in here. What you want about? So we had lunch in this weird little tea place and then went up to the to the film premiere. So and as we walk in, of course, the, the whole place is full of Michael Jackson fans. And I walk in with Tom Mesereau. And so everybody just starts going bananas. And so we ended up posing for pictures with like, I, I don't even want to guess how many people, a lot a lot of pictures and I still get messages from people today who say oh, it was so nice to meet you at the square one premiere I'm like did we I, I don't know <laughs> I don't remember I don't remember that but I met so many people I think I, I'm pretty sure I met Maria who was on the history round table that you did so it, it was a crazy day John Ziegler was there so Tom John and I ended up being in pictures with just like, there was a queue of people to take pictures with us. I didn't... I, I was not really enjoying that whole... Part. Oh, and Geraldine Hughes was there. Oh, my God. So, yeah, Geraldine's there. So I was like, oh, wow, I need to get FaceTime with Geraldine because she's nuts. So I went with... Tar so Taj and Tayana were with us. There was just a huge crew of us that went to the premiere. I met Liam McEwen. He was there. Yeah, just... A, uh, it was a great day. That was a really great Laurie day. Laurie Petty. I did meet her very briefly. Yes, she was there. I'm pretty sure I met the guitarist from This Is It, Tommy Organ. Tommy Organ was there. I think he was sitting next to Elise in the in the screening. I met Jim, no, Jin. Jim, who's the guy that made uh, the Leaving Neverland rebuttal film? His name was Jin uh, something. I don't know who that is. I don't want to mispronounce the name, so I'm not going to attempt it, but it was Jin or something, and he was very nice. And we took a picture together, and people were going nuts because they thought that he was Geordie Chandler, um, oh which, of course, God. he wasn't. 
<laughs> yeah, so I'm trying to think what else we did on that trip because I was there for a week. Oh, yeah. So on the same trip. So I go to the Square One premiere, but I'm also hanging out with Taj because Taj is now working on his documentary. So I had just been working on the podcast for Michael Shermer. And in the process of going through a whole bunch of documents that I hadn't looked at for many, many years for the section on the trial, I come across a witness statement or a series of witness statements from Carol Lemire. Now, Carol Lemire is kind of an obscure... She never got called as a witness at the trial, so people never talk about her, but she did give witness statements. So she knew the Arvizos. Her son was a tap dancer, and she enrolled him in this tap dance class. And who else is in the tap dance class but the three Arvizo kids? So she, in the late 1990s, meets the Arvizos and describes them as con artists. She says they were always peddling, like, crazy sob stories, trying to get people to give them money, claiming they lived in a barn with no heating and all sorts of shit. And um, she literally described them in her witness statement as trained con artists. But she became very close to Davelin, the Arviso daughter. Mm. Now, so close that when Davelin had a massive falling out with Janet Arviso and stormed out of the house and moved out, she went to live with Carol Lemire. During the period that Davelin was staying with Carol Lemire, according to her witness statements, Davelin was saying that Janet would make them go shoplifting and stealing, and uh, she would get them involved in criminality. She would force them to lie. When she was divorcing the dad, she was telling Davelin, you need to start saying that he sexually abused you because that's the only way I'm going to get rid of him saying that Janet used to just come into her room in the middle of the night and just start beating her for no reason. One of the things that Davelin tells Carol Lemire one day at Carol's house is she says, um, oh, well, Mum says that Michael Jackson's going to buy us a big house in the Hollywood Hills. And um, and Carol Lemire is like, what are you talking about? You know, because Carol Lemire, by the way, is a celebrity hairstylist who used hmm. to be 3T's hairstylist. She used to do Taj's braids. So she had a, a connection to Michael Jackson like years earlier. So she's like, she's going, well, I know that Michael Jackson is generous, but, you know, buying somebody a house in the Hollywood Hills, we're not talking about a couple of hundred grand. We're talking like millions of dollars. So mm. she said, what are you talking about? Michael's going to buy you a house in the Hollywood Hills. And through questioning Dave Linarviso, she establishes that Janet is planning to extort Michael Jackson. Davelin, according to Carol Lemire's witness statements, Davelin confesses this to her. She says, um, my mom is planning to falsely accuse Michael of showing Gavin and Starr how to log on to adult websites. And she's going to use the threat of this allegation to get him to buy us a house. Mm. Um and Carol Lemaire places this admission by Dave Lynn in around the year 2000. So she then telephones Michael Jackson's camp, who she has an, an old link to through her professional world, and says, you need to get the Arvizos away from Michael Jackson immediately because there's something deeply wrong here. And she says that when uh, she told Dave Lynn, like, you can't do this, this is a terrible thing to do, Davelin sort of rode back and started going, oh, no, no, I'm only joking. It's only a joke. But she made the phone call anyway and said, you need to get Michael away from these kids. And of course, what we know from the trial is around that time, 
the Arvizos were in fact frozen out of, of Neverland and Michael's world, and spent the next couple of years bombarding him with letters and cards and postcards, calling him daddy and saying, we miss you and thank you mm. for curing Gavin's cancer and all this stuff. So, I mean, that, that witness statement alone is reasonable doubt. Well, exactly. And he never even ended up calling Carol Tom Mesero because after Chris Tucker's testimony, the atmosphere in the courtroom was so sour about the prosecution and everything that he just thought, I have to rest my case right now because I'm never going to get a moment like this again. This is just like kismet. He had two months of witnesses left, but he just rested and scrapped all the rest of his witnesses. So Carol never got called. But her witness statement is there because it was attached to a motion. So I'm reading this motion and going, well, this is like incredible stuff, you know, and she never testified. So if Taj could get her in his documentary, then what a coup and what a kind of a like a smoking gun that would be. So I said to Taj, you know, there's this woman who gave a statement. I don't know, you know, her name's Carol Lemaire. And Taj is like, what, the Carol? What, the one, the woman that used to do my bra- I didn't know that at the time. The woman that used to do my braids. So, uh, I don't know, maybe, you know. Um, so he calls Carol Lemaire and says, we should all go out for dinner. So I travel down to Marina Del Rey with Taj and his two producers Erica and Anise, and we meet Carol Lemire at her apartment block, and we're about to go out for dinner, and we all get in the elevator, and it stops in the middle of some floors, and we're going, oh, okay, well, this, you know, we just press some buttons, you know, like, okay, so what's going on? And, you know, something like 40 minutes later, we were prized out of the elevator by the Culver City Fire Department, which was kind of an incident and a weird, a whole weird episode. Um, <laughs> if ever you're going to get stuck in a lift, by the way, with anyone, you totally want it to be Carol Lemire because she's so, like, eccentric. <laughs> it's just brilliant. And, and of course, you don't want to be stuck in a lift with Taj because, it, as it turns out, he is claustrophobic, which I didn't know until I got stuck in a lift with him. How long were you in the lift for? I would say about 40 minutes before we were eventually rescued. We were only in there for about 90 seconds before Carol started pounding on the doors and screaming. But uh, eventually we were in there for about 40 minutes. So I'm in the car with Taj and Carol. And the other two are making their own way. And we're driving to the Cheesecake Factory in Marina Del Rey. And so we're talking to Carol about why we wanted to meet her. And we're doing, we say, oh, we're doing a documentary on the uh, MJ allegations. And, uh, of course, fully expecting to talk to her about the Arvizos. And she says, oh, of course, well, I was there when Michael got the phone call. I go, um, what phone call? Well, the phone call from Geordie. Uh, right, what phone call from Geordie? She said, I was doing his hair. I was, I was doing his hair. And um, the phone rang, and it was Geordie, and it was after the allegations had been made, and uh, he was on the phone, and he was crying, and he was saying, Michael, I'm so sorry, I don't want to do this, my dad's making me do this, and then Michael started crying, and both him and Geordie were crying, Michael was terribly upset, and I was like, oh my god, like, <laughs> what? You know, this is like an insane... This is so insane. We came to talk to you about the Arvizos and we get this bombshell about Geordie Chandler. 
which I just had no idea about. Of course, it was of no relevance when she was giving a witness statement in the 2005 case. So yeah, she had this whole other story about Geordie Chandler. And then she gives us this second bombshell as we're driving down to the Cheesecake Factory. And she says she became very good friends with David Arviso. When Janet and David split up and Dave Lynn was telling her all about how Janet was making up stories about David and she was saying that Davelin would have to start pretending that David had been uh, sexually abusing her because it would help Janet to win custody. She realised what a car crash this all was and, and how malicious and malevolent the mother was and became very close with David Arviso. She tells us this story about how she actually went to court for one of David and Janet's divorce hearings and Janet Arviso, like, showed up in a wheelchair with a neck brace on or something, like something out of a sitcom, pretending that she'd been all beaten up by David to try and win sympathy from the judge. And she also, though, told us the story about how she actually watched the American premiere of the Martin Bashir documentary, Living with Michael Jackson. She watched that with David Arviso. They got together, he came to her place or she went to his, uh, I can't remember which, and they sat and watched the show together. And neither of them had seen it because the only place it had aired was in the UK so far. When the section with the Arvizos came on, she said that David turned to her and said, watch, watch what will happen now. He said, uh, Gavin will rest his head on Michael's shoulder, watch. And um, lo and behold... Gavin rests his head on Michael's shoulder. And he turned to her and said, that's the grift. That's what we taught him to do. That's all part of the scam. It's all part of how we win sympathy from the people that we were trying to get money from. He said, I can see what's happening here. I can see it. I can see him doing everything that he was trained to do back when he had the cancer and we were trying to get money out of people. And that was just such a... A crazy story, you know, that not only Carol Lemaire, you know, has all of this information about the Arviso case and has this bombshell about the Geordie Chandler case, but was that close to David and she was a first-hand witness to him saying, this is how the scam works. This is how it all operates. We taught him to do this. And then we went out for dinner and she just had stories for days about, you know, Michael and working with Michael. And she told us a really depressing story about Michael. So she said that about a week before Michael died, he called her and they were chatting away and she was thinking, I wonder why he's called me. And then, according to Carol, Michael asked if she could get him some pain pills. And she said, no, I'm not going to do that for you. And she said he sounded really sort of downbeat and he said to her carol didn't i show you the world and she said yes michael you did show me the world and he said didn't i show it to you in style and she said yes you did he said uh okay good and then they said goodbye and that was the last thing he ever said to her and um and she felt like almost like it was a goodbye real weird story you know I've probably not done it justice but uh, it made my gave me goosebumps when she told me that story 
So that was my last day. I'm pretty sure that was my last day of that trip that straddled September, October for the Square One premiere. But, oh no, there was other shit that went on on that trip. So no, so I did the Ziegler program with, with Taj, of course, which people have heard, so I don't need to talk about that. But I also ended up on the 3T radio show. So I was doing something with Taj. This is how Taj operates. So I was doing something with Taj, and I meet him in the car, and he's like, oh, we just have to go and do this radio show first. I end up on 3T's radio show by accident just because it was on the way to something else that we were doing, which I don't even remember what that was, the other thing we were doing. Um, we're talking specifically about the, the Power of Love podcast, right? Yes, yes, yeah, the, yeah. the DDJ uh, yes. show. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So now it was only Tarrell. It was just me, Taj, and Tarrell. I'm not sure where TJ was. There's nothing really to report about that. I mean, probably you can just go and find it. I think it was a waste of time, me being there, because I... The whole thing, so Terrell is quite a spiritual person, whereas I am sort of like the opposite of a spiritual person. So he was talking about all this spiritual stuff, and I was just like, yeah, no. But um, so, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, but I remember I was sat, so I don't even know where the studio is that they record it. I would have known at the time, but I've forgotten. Where the studio is, so you go up a couple of floors. And I was sat in this radio studio. I had Taj on my right, Tarrell on my left. They were each facing each other with their backs to the glass walls of the radio booth. And I was facing forward out of this gigantic window, which was framing like a sea of palm trees with a purple mountain behind them and then a, an empty blue sky. And I just thought, thank God the yellow advertiser closed down, you know, because like none of this would have happened. I would not have been able to just drop everything and fly out to Los Angeles to come to a movie premiere. I would not be sat in a radio studio in Los Angeles looking at these mountains. What a blessing this is. You know, It was like, yeah. it was just like, it was wow. All right, Charlie, let's take our first break to talk about our sponsor for this episode of the MJ cast, Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, fiction, and self-development. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, and access to daily news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, as well as guided meditation programs. You can download titles and listen offline, anytime, anywhere. The app is free and can be installed on all smartphones and tablets. You can listen across devices without losing your spot. And if you can't decide what to listen to, don't worry. You can keep your credits for up to a year and use them to binge on a whole series if you like. Now, being a history teacher and a huge fan of Michael Jackson, I love reading. But the thing is, <laughs> I'm a dad as well. <laughs> And time's of the essence. And I'm sure every parent out there listening knows exactly what I'm talking about. And even if you're not a parent, we all live such busy lives these days. The thing is, Audible allows you to read while you're on the go. Whether it's commuting or just being at home gardening, working out, anything like that, you can enjoy an audiobook. And right now, I'm enjoying Bill Whitfield's Remember the Time. Bill Whitfield was Michael Jackson's head of security during the later years of his life. 
And he's definitely one of the most interesting people I've ever spoken to relating to Michael Jackson. Before Michael Jackson re-emerged for This Is It, Bill Whitfield was right there as his head of security, protecting his family. If you want to learn about those mysterious years and what Michael Jackson was up to and what Bill Whitfield and his team had to do to protect Michael's family, you've got to get into this book. Incredible first-hand accounts, just so much fun to read. It's great to learn about Michael as a dad, as well as the king of pop. The thing I love about Audible is that it helps you get time back. You're listening to the MJ cast because you love learning, and listening to an audiobook is a similarly great experience. So head over to audibletrial.com slash the MJ cast and register for a one month free trial. You're going to love it, especially if you make your free book something Michael Jackson related. Maybe Bill Whitfield's Remember the Time. So head over to audibletrial.com slash the MJ cast right now and sign up. Thank you, Audible, for sponsoring the MJ cast. All right. So, Charlie, I'm guessing it's at this point that you return back to England. So I get home back to England and immediately pretty much get a message from Taj that says, hey, do you want to come back to L.A. because we're having a Halloween party at Havenhurst? Be great if you came. What can you say to that? What can you say to that? <laughs> Apart from there's only one. Yes. Answer. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing, the only sticking point was it was a costume party, a fancy dress party, which I, in my whole life, I have always had like a zero tolerance policy on fancy dress parties. I just, I hate parties. I hate them. I hate parties. I just fucking despise them. I've never enjoyed them. I didn't enjoy them when I was three years old, and I don't enjoy them now. What don't you like about parties? I hate them. I just hate them. I just don't like them. I just don't. I find, you know, there's always some caveat on them, like you've got to dress a certain way. Like, mm. I got invited to Tito's album launch party, and I boycotted because I had to wear a suit. It was black tie. I was like, I'm not going. So um, <laughs> I have, like, I just hate. I just it just pisses me off. If I can't go in a pair of cargo trousers and a plaid shirt, then I'm not going. I was like, oh man, I said, Taj, do I have to wear a costume? Is it necessary for me to wear a costume? That's such an English thing to ask, Charlie. <laughs> and he said, <laughs> oh no, 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 that's fine. So, you know, like there's usually loads of people there that are not wearing costumes. Um, that's totally fine. So yeah, that's great. Just come as you are. You know, the most important thing is that you come. So I said, okay, can I have a plus one? He said, yeah. So I invited my friend Angela. We booked a trip. And so a, a few days before I'm due to fly out, I'm speaking to Taj's producer, Erica. And she said, so what's your costume? What are you coming as? And I said, oh, I'm not coming in a costume. Taj said, I, there's no need. And she goes, Charles, I, I just have no idea why Taj has said that to you. I've been to this party like every year for the last five years. I've never seen a single person there that's not in a costume. Never. So you're going to look like really bad if you're not in a costume. So I go, fucking hell. So I've booked a trip now <laughs> thinking I'm not going to have to wear a costume Oh, for fuck's How hard sake. is it go so, to go to the costume store? Come on, they've got like I hate I hate them. Things. So yeah, but they're uncomfortable. I find pa costume parties really passive aggressive. I think it's a really passive aggressive thing to do to say, "I want you to come to my party. 
I've asked you, of course, because I like you and I want to spend time with you. Presumably that's why you are somebody to come to your party. But there is a caveat. If you want to come, you've got to either spend like a month building a costume or you just got to go and fucking buy one. It's going to cost you a shitload of money. It's like, oh, you cunt. So I just hate <laughs> costume parties. I hate them. So anyway, I was like, so what is the bare minimum that I could do as a costume? So I thought, well, I had, from when I was much younger, a Thriller t-shirt which had Michael's face on as a zombie. And I thought, well, that's sort of half a costume. Like, you know, it's a nod. It's, you know, it's like, it's, it scores two points on the costume meter because it's a zombie and it's Michael. So if I just do that and then, like, wear a mask or something... So I went out and bought, like, a sort of a scream mask type looking mask thing... But then I was thinking, God, no, in Los Angeles, it's, like, really hot. So if I have that mask on for, like, ten minutes, I'm just going to be drenched in sweat. It's going to be awful. So I I then bought some face paint. Having never painted my face ever as anything, I just bought some face paint and thought, oh, that'll do. So I get there with Angela. I get detained at the airport, by the way. I fly into LAX, there's about f- fucking 90 flights have all disembarked at the same time. I've never, ever seen queues like this at an airport. It's going to take me hours to get out anyway. And then I eventually get to the front where the guy checks your passport. And he says, uh, have you brought anything into the country? I had brought Taj some Cadbury's Flake chocolate bars because he loves them. And, um, you know, he's invited me to, like, his family mansion for a party. The least I can do is buy him a flake bar. So I I had bought some flake bars, like, you know, like 10 bars of chocolate and put them in my suitcase. And I had this thought of, like, am I wrong to have brought the flake bars? Should I? I don't know. Am I supposed to bring those in or not? So I said to this guy, oh, no, no, not unless a couple of chocolate bars counts. And he says, what do you mean? said uh well i've bought my my friend i'm visiting a friend here and he loves english chocolate so i brought him some chocolate and he just goes wait here and he just disappears for like five minutes and then comes back and says come with me sir and i get taken into this like detainment center where it's just full of people (laughs) who are like trying to sneak into america with criminal convictions and all this shit and you're not allowed to even take your cell phone out of your pocket. If they see you with a cell phone, they go bananas, right? Because I saw a couple of people with their cell phones out and they got in trouble. So Erica, Taj's producer, is waiting outside the airport to pick up me and Angela. Angela came in on a separate flight from me, but was arriving at roughly the same time. I can't telephone either of them to tell them where I am. So I just sit in this detainment center for, I shit you not, about three hours. About three hours I was sat there. And then this guy calls me up to a window and questions me for all of, I would say, about 40 seconds. And then says, okay, you're free to go. So I was like, for fuck. So I, so I then have to go and find my suitcase because they've gone and retrieved my suitcase and searched it, searched my suitcase where they, of course, found a load of makeup and um, and a Halloween mask and and my chocolate, which they did not take away. 
so by the time I get outside, Erica has been involved in a car crash because she was driving around the airport over and over again, waiting for me to come out, going, where the fuck is Charlie? And somebody drove into her car. Angela's like having a panic attack. So the next day was the party at Havenhurst. This is an annual thing. The whole thing was BG's creation. So BG goes to a school called Berkeley, which is where Taj and his brothers went years earlier. And he started hosting these Halloween parties as like a treat for his year group at school. It's a very small private school, so his year group is like 30 kids or something. But he was putting so much effort and money into hosting these parties. And I mean, he is like, a, I mean, I don't know how much of it is BG's work, but it's spectacular when you get there. The The stuff that they bring in is just, it's like being on a horror set. Somebody at some point went, well, you know, if we if we're going to all of this effort to arrange these parties, then we might as well just do a couple of nights and then like turn it into a charity thing. So it became a fundraiser for the DDJ Foundation where they would sell tickets to the party for like a thousand dollars and all the money would go to DDJ. And then there would be a charity auction when you got in there to raise some more money and whatever. And then they added a third day. So you had the original day, which was the friends and family day. Then they added the charity fundraiser day. And then they also added eventually a daytime one, a third day, which is all for underprivileged kids from gang areas and all that kind of stuff. I was invited to the friends and family bit. So the charity night had happened the night that I was detained at the airport. The next day was the friends and family thing, which Angela and I were going to. And then the third day was the underprivileged kids day. We're getting ready to go out. And Angela, of course, has brought this incredibly elaborate costume, which looks amazing, where she's like glued a zip to her face. And so like her face that. is unzipped and all blood's coming out. And I was like, bitch, yeah. I, now I've got to do something really good. So I was like, so I was like, oh, for fuck. So I, uh, at one point I was going, oh, that's it. I'm not, I'm not wearing anything. That's it. I'm just going as I'm, that's it. And then Angela sort of won me round. And so I decided to paint my face as a zombie. So I'm wearing my thriller t-shirt with Michael as a zombie. And then I thought I'll paint my own face as a zombie. So it's like a tribute, right? So I've never applied makeup before. I'm doing the best I can. I put on a green base coat and then more green and then I start adding like yellows and browns and sort of making it look all sort of moldy and then I do put black on my cheeks to kind of make my cheeks look a bit hollowed out and my eyes I do black to make them look all sunken and I was looking in the mirror going this looks quite good actually so we took some pictures <laughs> at the apartment and I was like do you know what considering like I've never, ever done this before. I'm really happy with how this has turned out because I thought it was going to be a disaster. So we go down to Havenhurst. We have to sign an NDA. It's a really weird situation, right? So on the way in, you sign an NDA. And then I go in, I find Taj and say, Taj, what's the deal with the NDA? Can we like, because everybody around us is just like taking photos and videos of everything. So can we t do that? And he was like, oh yeah, that's no problem. You can... <laughs> anything you know it's just, it's just like to stop people selling shit stories and stuff like that so okay 
you know, we get in there, Tom Mesereau is there, not in a costume. By the way, I get there, like, fucking 40% of the people there are not in a costume. So I was like, okay, <laughs> what's going on? So Thanks, Angela. Tom Mesereau's not in a costume and his of wife's Of course Tom was in a costume. And... What what sort of costume would Tom wear? I'm trying to picture it. <laughs> Pirate? Yeah, well, he Come was... On. <laughs> I don't know. It didn't, you know, like you say, he could put a mask on or I don't know. But he, he was just he was just there. So I suppose he was not in a suit. That sort of counts as a costume that, for Tom. Yeah, kind of He does. was just like... <laughs> and we bumped into a couple of people. I'm sat next to Tom and we're just chatting away. We were talking to Siggy. You know Siggy, uh, Jackie's son, Siggy. His partner, I don't know if they're married, his girlfriend or wife, works in the criminal justice system doing something which I'd forgotten. So she and Tom were having a proper good chat about that, about, you know, all the shit that's going on in the criminal justice system and how it's all going to pot and blah, blah, blah. I was sat with Tom having a chat, and then this guy dressed as the Joker, because the film Joker with uh, Joaquin Phoenix was in the cinema at the time, and this guy, like, dressed it amazingly as the Joker comes over and and says to me, are you Charles Thompson? In an English accent, I'm looking at him like, who is this guy? And he says, oh, I follow you. I'm a big fan of what you do. I'm James Bourne. I was like, James Bourne? Oh, my God. So James Bourne is in a band called Busted. In England, Busted are a huge band. They play arenas. In fact, I don't know if they still do, but they used to hold the, the record for the most concerts played at Wembley Arena. Again, it's like, how have I, you know, I'm having like flashbacks to being at the UCLA thing with Linda and Helen Mirren. And they're talking about, oh, do you remember that time we were at your house when you won the Oscar? And it's like, what the fuck's going on? Um, so, <laughs> I, you know, now James Bourne is like, oh, hey, Charles, you know, yeah, hi, I know you. Anyway, so I get invited to James Bourne's house later in the, my trip. You know, it just says you should come over and hang out. And we take a picture, me... James Bourne, Tom Mesereau. So then they're doing these, I forget what they called them, but BG creates these amazing, like, I think they called them scare mazes or fright mazes or something. So you go inside the mansion at Havenhurst, but they've put all this stuff up to turn it into this hideous thing where you just follow these tunnels around and people like jump out of you with chainsaws and shit. So... I hated it. It was awful. It was really, really scary. So I go in to do this fright maze thing, which scared the absolute shit out of me. I was like, I'm not doing another one of them. One of them went through Michael's bedroom, (laughs) but of course you can't, you can't see any of the house. You're just in these tight black corridors that they've constructed. It's genius. I think BG actually creates them. He's real smart, BG. So, so anyway, we come out of that and it exits by the porter potties. And so we were like, oh, we'll just use the bathroom while we're here. So none of the doors on these porta potties closed properly. They were all broken for some reason. So we took it in turns, like one of us use it and the other one stand guard outside. So while Angela's using the restroom, I'm like going through my pictures from the evening so far. And I just have this horrendous revelation. When we put the makeup on, we were in a very brightly lit apartment. And my face is green with, you know, flecks of brown and yellow, but it's green makeup. And, of course, when we get to Havenhurst, 
it's night time, the whole party is outdoors, the only lighting is like ambient lighting, like uh, fairy light type lights, and I'm looking through all these pictures, I've taken pictures with Prince and Paris, I've taken pictures with James Bourne and Tom Mesero, with Danny Wu, and in every single one of these fucking pictures, it looks like I'm wearing blackface. So oh, because no. the the lighting is terrible. Um I was like, oh no. This is why you shouldn't have fucking costume party. So <laughs> I you know, I'm like, oh no. So I just spent the rest of the evening like trying as many times as I could to mention the fact that my makeup was green. So you know, like just be talking about something. I say, "Oh God, this green makeup is really annoying." You know, so I was, you know, I'm definitely not wearing blackface. So you know, <laughs> for fuck's sake! So all of these pictures, I just look like I'm wearing blackface. I was like, "For fuck's sakes!" So what else happened? Yeah, so I met Prince in Paris very briefly. I met actually, I spoke to Prince quite a lot over that day and the next day. Met BG very briefly. Met TJ for the first time very briefly. But the next day was the underprivileged kids' day. I just wanted to see the property in the daytime and thought maybe it would be a bit more quiet and peaceful, far fewer guests, much more relaxed atmosphere. So Angela and I volunteered to help out at the underprivileged kids' day. And Taj was like, yeah, great, come with. So we get picked up by Taj and taken back to Havenhurst the next day in the daytime. We're like, so what do you want us to do? And he's like, oh, there's nothing to do. You can just hang out. <laughs> Me and Angela sort of become honorary underprivileged children for the day. So everywhere we go, there's just like women jumping out at us and going, do you want some cake? There's some cake here. Do you want some cake? Do you want to, do you want to say, oh, we've got popcorn over here. Do you want some popcorn? It's like, yeah, all right. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, this is insane. They had these amazing cakes there, which were like, they had Pennywise from the It movies, like his head as a cake, but it was so spectacular. They had a huge Michael Jackson thriller zombie cake. It was just just spectacular. The lady that bakes all these cakes is a lady called Janice. So we get introduced to Janice, who it turns out used to be Catherine Jackson's personal assistant and also became the property manager at Havenhurst and who made the socks and the glove for Michael for Motown 25. Whoa. So we were talking to Janice for a while and took a picture with Janice and we're just sort of bumming around being underprivileged kids. Yeah, do you want a hot dog? Yeah, all right. You know, like just fucking just stuff being thrown at us from every direction. Cookies with heal the world written on them. Uh, It was ridiculous. You know, so it gets towards the end of the day. Taj is talking to this guy with a camera over his shoulder and he goes, oh, Charles, this is Hamid. Uh, what, Hamid, Hamid Musley? He says, yeah. I said, oh, my God, Taj, we need to talk to Hamid for the, the documentary. You know, this is like, T- Hamid was a really important person in the whole thing. So I ended up talking to Hamid for like an hour, which was just really bizarre that he would be there. It turned out he was there working for Prince as the official photographer for the charity day. He was Michael's videographer for many years, I think, in the ni- late 90s and 2000s. Yeah, 
he was Michael's photographer and videographer from about, well, he did MJ and Friends for Michael. He did 30th anniversary gigs. He did um, American Bandstand 2002. What more can I give? He he did lots of stuff for Michael, lots of family portraits. Of course, most crucially, he was the person who had the brains to say, Michael, if you're filming this interview with Martin Bashir, do you want me to put my camera up so that you've got your own copy of the interview? That was Hamid. So Hamid was quite possibly the person who saved Michael's skin. Those videos allowed Michael to testify effectively at his trial without taking the stand and completely discredited the Bashir documentary. Of course, Hamid also is the person who shot the Arviso rebuttal interview, which became another crucial piece of evidence at the trial. So he's a really important person and so, so lovely. He's really good friends with Prince because Prince is like super, 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 super macho, like really, really macho and loves motorbikes and guns. Those are like the two things that he loves. So, and Hamid also is a biker. So he and Hamid go on these really long motorbike rides all over the place. So they're very good friends now. Of course, Hamid has known him since since he was like, I don't know, three years old or something. So yeah, I ended up just spending like a whole hour just hanging around with Hamid and chatting. And he's a really, really lovely person. And then Taj managed to get Angela and I access to... The memory room, I think it was an office at Havenhurst. Michael locked everybody out of this office for weeks while he was living at Havenhurst and then did a grand reopening. And what he'd done was he'd ha- somehow had years worth of family photographs blown up and printed on this amazing material. And he'd used this material to frame the entire room. So the whole room is just made up of family photographs and photographs of the Jacksons with celebrities, uh, you know, Elizabeth Taylor, Muhammad Ali, all sorts of people. Old photos of Janet and Latoya. And the whole room was hand-decorated by Michael. And it was completely off-limits. The majority of the property was off-limits during these parties. You could only really use the garden or the games room, the arcade. Havenhurst I didn't get to see a lot of. I saw the grounds, I saw the memory room, the arcade, the restroom. Havenhurst is a a really strange property. Just because from the outside it doesn't look very big. You know, you look at it from the front and there's a gate and immediately next to it is the gate to another house. By the way, first time I ever went to Los Angeles was in 2010. And I met up with a guy called Tony Best, who is a, a journalist that used to work for Wax Poetics. And um, and he took me and my friend Angela on a, like a little mini tour of Los Angeles one day. And he took us to Havenhurst. And we had a picture taken outside the gate of Havenhurst as one of the many stops on our uh, sightseeing trip. We had a book printed of of our trip with this picture of us outside Havenhurst quite large filling a whole page in the book and uh, then went over to Havenhurst for Taj's party and discovered that in fact we had taken the photograph in 2010 outside the wrong gate 
Oh. So <laughs> that was annoying. But yeah, so from the outside, Havenhurst just looks like a gate, and then immediately next to it is the gate to another property. So it doesn't look that big. But then you get inside the gate, and you're going, holy shit. You know, it's like, it's massive. The house, the main house is massive. And then there's a whole second building, which is where the memory room is, and I think where the studio is, although we didn't get to see the studio. And this swimming pool, we didn't even get to see the whole grounds. Because they had kids running around at these parties, they had blocked off the part of the property where the swimming pool is, because obviously they don't want anybody falling in the swimming pool. So as a health and safety thing, that was all blocked off but the grounds are huge i mean we're not talking neverland you know it's not it's not like gigantic but certainly in terms of private homes that i've ever been to it was the largest and uh and then me and angela hopped in an uber and drove down to mel's drive through which is a very famous diner down in hollywood where we met elise again from mj cast we went down to the uh the Geordie Chandler play, that play that was on. You, do you remember it? I can't even remember what it was called now. Oh, right. Yes. Uh, so Elise wrote like an op-ed about it because it was so bizarre. It was very bizarre. Danny Wu was there. There were a bunch of other people there. We all went together. It was just a very strange play in the sense that I, as well, by the time it finished, I was just going, well, what was the point of that then? It was just, it didn't reach any conclusion. It didn't really take any sides. It was sort of the Geordie Chandler case, but not the Geordie Chandler case because they changed it so much. So the whole thing was just like, what was the point of that? But anyway, so we did that. So after the play, I had the best part of two weeks left in LA. We just booked a long trip and decided to just hang out. So one of the things I did was I went over to meet Taj and Taj and I gained access to all of the paperwork that was found in Michael's home when he died. All of his handwritten notes, various lyrics, little weird post-its he'd written to himself, magazines he'd been reading at the time, this is it set lists that he'd drawn up, all sorts of stuff. And we just spent days going through all this paperwork copies of contracts and i mean there was just tons and tons of stuff because we were trying to discern whether any of it would be of any use for his documentary and what were some of the more interesting things you learned from sifting through that stuff firstly i shit you not amongst all of this paperwork was a brochure for a hyperbaric chamber (laughs) and also there was handwritten lyrics to songs I've never heard of. There was a song or a poem that Michael had written about an eagle. Oh, there was lists and lists of unreleased songs that he was working on. Tons of them. You know, he'd written these lists over and over again. And of course, the the most important and interesting thing about those lists is the total absence of any of the Casio songs on any of them. 30 plus songs in some instances that he was working on at the time of his death. There were notes that he'd written about this is it, about things he wanted to change, about concepts. So like there was a concept that he'd written down for this is it. So originally his concept for this is it was that Smooth Criminal was going to transition into Thriller. And what was going to happen 
was that at the end of Smooth Criminal, you know when all the guys get machine gunned and they, all the fireworks go off on their chests? Yeah. They were going to get dragged off stage and then this like creepy janitor guy was going to come on stage with a mop that was going to be mopping up the blood. And then he was going to turn and he was going to lift the mop up and swing it towards the back of the stage and all the blood was going to fly off and it was going to spell out the word thriller. Oh. And that was going to be the beginning of thriller. That's cool. Michael had handwritten that concept and I'm holding this piece of paper in my hand. All of this stuff, we were just, we were handling the original documents. We, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of Michael's handwritten notes and lyrics and all sorts of stuff. Often I talk to people who were collaborators who were frozen out of This Is It. And I'm thinking specifically of Kevin Dorsey here. And I think he told a story that a note was found in Michael's bedroom when he died that said something like, get me my old band back. Was it? And I've heard similar other stories from personnel. Was there anything like that? It does sound familiar. There was, there, uh, there was so much material and I did not photograph any of it and I didn't take any notes, which I really regret. I was just, all we did was we sifted through it and we made a pile of stuff that we said, yeah, this might be useful for the documentary and stuff where we said, no, I can't see this being any relevance. So we just ended up with two piles and that was it. I don't remember specifically if I saw that note, but there were lots of notes that he was writing, which were very strange notes that like that you would not imagine anybody else writing to themselves. So, for example, there was a lawyer whose name I don't remember. I don't remember which lawyer it was, but he'd written himself a note that said, whatever the person's name was, why is this lawyer working for you when he is a racist, in big capital letters, racist, with loads of question marks? It's like, why would you need to write that down for yourself? You know, it's a very strange... You, you wonder what Michael's thought process was. Like, tomorrow he's going to wake up and not remember that the guy's a racist, you know? Like, you know, why, <laughs> why would you need to write that down? And he had all sorts of notes that said things like that. Why is this person around? Why do you trust this person? You do not know him. All that kind of stuff. So there were some interesting notes in there that I think, you know, we need more context, really, to find out what some of them are about. And there is a pile now that exists somewhere of this is the stuff that could be useful for the documentary. I don't remember a lot of specifics. So the documents, I can't really tell you much more about that, not because I'm being cagey, but just because I don't really remember much. Apart from one interesting thing was um, somebody... Oh, you'll like this. So somebody from Max Jacks, this old website called Max Jacks, a bunch of fans... I think I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> a bunch of fans wrote a letter to Michael. It was handwritten, I believe. I'm not 100% sure on that. But it was signed from this particular fan. But it said, you know, me and blah and blah and blah and blah and blah at Max Jacks have all, we all love you and blah, blah, blah. Michael had read it. He'd opened it and read it. The reason I know this is because he'd written himself a note on the back of it. And the note said that at the time of Michael's death, he was working on new music with Rod Temperton. Mm. So I don't know what they were working on, but they were working. Now, I had heard that years earlier because Angela, one of her friends is a guy called Patrick Grafton Green, 
who's a journalist now at the Evening Standard in London. And his father, whose name I don't remember, is a really big lawyer in the entertainment industry, one of whose clients was Rod Temperton. And Angela met Rod Temperton through her friend Patrick and got a CD signed. She got her copy of Thriller signed by uh, Rod. She somehow found out that around the time of Michael's death, Michael and Rod were working on music and they were doing it long distance. So they were sending the concepts back and forth between England and America. And presumably when Michael came to England to do This Is It, they would have hooked up in person and, and got going properly. But yeah, this note confirmed what Angela had, had found out, which was that Michael and Rod were working together at the time of his death. Amazing. Yeah. You were sifting through a gold mine. Incredible. I, what I would give to be able to go through them myself. <laughs> well, then I started sifting through another gold mine because we get invited. Having met Hamid at the party, Hamid is like, oh, you're working on a documentary? You should come and look at all this footage I have. So we go to Hamid's studio. Hamid has so much, so, so, so much footage of um, of Michael. It's just unbelievable. It's hard to know where to start in terms of telling you about it. But of course, the one thing which absolutely blew my mind was the rehearsals for the 30th anniversary concerts. So Hamid was in the rehearsals filming both a dance studio type thing where they had a band set up and and they were just performing in like a, I don't know what you would call it, just like a rehearsal studio, I guess. And then when they moved over to Madison Square Garden and started rehearsing there, he has all that footage as well. Uh, there's so much interesting stuff in there, but the best stuff was from the little rehearsal studio. Now, Michael looks terrible in this footage. I mean, there's no glossing over it. He looks really, really bad. He's got this terrible sort of like Alanis Morissette, really flat hair. And he's got all this tape wrapped around his nose and so much tape that it's like sticking off of his nose. And it makes his nose look about, you know, like four inches long. But this rehearsal footage is so much better than the concert that happened is so much better. And there's this amazing moment where they were between songs and whoever was playing piano, they're off camera. I don't know who it is, but whoever is playing piano starts playing Stranger in Moscow. I don't know why. I'm, I'm assuming it was never part of the set list, but they start playing Stranger in Moscow. And Hamid has his camera trained on Michael, who's just sort of mooching about between rehearsals. And and he hears Stranger in Moscow start to play, and he starts performing Stranger in Moscow just on the carpet in the middle of this room. And as if that isn't spectacular enough, which is like the only time we've ever seen Michael sing that song live. Well, the only time I've ever, you know, no one else has seen it. It's a travesty. But then... Jermaine walks into shot and he starts singing the background vocals. 
So you have Michael performing Stranger in Moscow live with Jermaine performing all of Michael's backgrounds with just piano accompaniment. And it's just this magical moment which was captured by Hamid, which has never been seen. And it's better than anything, you know, (laughs) when you watch those concerts. You know, I mean, those concerts really were a car crash, but the, the, the rehearsal footage is so much better. And this moment of Michael just performing Stranger, just standing in the middle of a, a room. There's all this maelstrom going on around him, people lugging equipment around and chattering and all this stuff. And he's just in his own little world performing Stranger in Moscow for for Hamid and no one else. And it was just wow. this incredible piece of footage. And then he started taking us through all this other stuff that he had, you know, like... um he had footage where Michael had flown Marcel Marceau to Neverland to stay for a few days and, and wanted to interview him. And he filmed the interview, so Hamid has that interview. He had footage of Michael hanging out with Nelson Mandela. He had all sorts of home movie footage. He had rehearsal footage from the Live at the Apollo or American Bandstand, whatever it was in 2002 i'm trying to remember i mean we were there for hours and the volume of material that he had was just staggering and we just spent like hours sitting in this studio on these really uncomfortable stools you know like not chairs but stools just watching just (laughs) just watching footage for hours and hours Uh, it was just a just a mate again another one of those moments where you're just going how did I end up here? This is insane. And thank God the yellow advertiser closed down. <laughs> you know, like, what the fuck oh. is going on? I mean, was there much... Um, I'm particularly interested in what this guy has. Was there a lot... Because I, I agree with you that, to be honest with you, I'm more fascinated with Michael in rehearsal than actually on stage in his later career because often we know that it was just lip-syncing. Mm-hmm. But... um. For example, the the rehearsals for the 95 MTV performance are great to watch. With MJ and Friends, did you see anything, any footage for that? I don't recall seeing any footage for that. I think Hamid may have been just on stills duty for MJ Mm -hmm. and Friends because I don't recall seeing any footage. Now, he did have the footage from the Madison Square Garden rehearsals now, the interesting thing about that footage is that Michael has the long curly hair that you would remember from MJ and Friends, that kind of thing. So it's, it seemed like at some point he was planning on having the proper Michael Jackson hair for that show. And then for whatever reason, it just didn't happen. You know, when he did the show, he had that weird kind of bob thing that he was wearing. But in the rehearsals, he has all these curls, long curls. And um, there was footage of him rehearsing with Britney and rehearsing with NSYNC and stood in the wings. He is none other than uh, Wade Robson um, Hmm. with a real sort of a, I don't know, he looked cheesed off about something. He had rehearsal footage, a lot of rehearsal footage from Madison Square Garden from that whole thing, from the rehearsal studio through to the, the venue. And he definitely had rehearsal footage from 
one of those 2002 performances. I, I don't remember which one it was because Michael did the same thing at both. He did that dangerous performance of both of them. So it could have been either one. How amazing would it be to see this stuff in Taj's documentary? Yeah, now I don't know who owns it. See, I don't understand the ownership situation. In England, working in the media, I can tell you that unless a photographer signs away their copyright, unless they specifically sign a document that says, I am giving you the copyright. So if you, if I ask you to take, say I hire a photographer to come and take pictures of a wedding, I do not own those pictures. The photographer owns those pictures unless they sell you the copyright. And that's the case with most wedding photographers. You know, they don't, you do not own your wedding photographs. Even if you've paid the guy five grand to come and take all the pictures, they own the pictures. Now, I don't know whether Michael had Hamid sign anything that said, you work for me and therefore I own the pictures, or whether he didn't and therefore they belong to Hamid. I don't know. It could turn into a big battle with the estate if anybody tried to use that footage for anything for example with the that documentary that somebody made called michael jackson's last photo shoots or whatever it was called yeah by craig williams yeah that photographer was saying emphatically i did not sign away my copyright so i own my footage michael didn't own this footage he paid me to shoot it but he didn't buy the copyright but the estate is so powerful that they don't really care if Michael did things properly or not because they've got unlimited money. So even if they know that really in law you own that footage, they don't care if they spend 10 years suing you, even if they lose. By the time they finish suing you, the film has not come out and they've got what they wanted. So it's, it's a difficult situation for Hamid to be in but Taj is, is Michael's nephew. His heart's in the right place. He's trying to make a documentary that's supporting Michael's innocence. Wouldn't you assume that the estate and the beneficiaries and executives would get behind Taj and just say, look, use what resources you want? What I've been told by Taj is that the estate has agreed that if he has requests for particular material that they may hold or own then they will endeavour to supply that material to him for use in the documentary as long as his requests are targeted. So he can't, for example, just say, oh, have you got any footage of this? Because they don't want to spend hours searching and then the, and then the answer is no. But if he goes to them and asks for something that he knows that they have, then they will endeavour to supply it to him. That's my understanding of the situation between Taj and the estate. We can only hope that the estate follows through on that agreement that they seem to have made. I mean, it's a real chance here for there to be collaboration between the family and the estate and for something really great to come out that features Michael's authentic material in some capacity. It'll add a lot of credence to it, whereas if it's just a documentary that has like um you know it's not you're not allowed to use any footage of michael or his music or anything it would be kind of like i don't know it could, in a way it could feel a bit fan made do you know what i mean 
Well, not only that, but I mean, you know, when you watch the David Guest documentary, it just jumps out at you. You know, it's it's a great documentary that David made, but there's this huge gap in the middle of it because they couldn't use any of Michael's adult solo material because the estate mm. would not play ball with him. So he has this phenomenal sort of hour almost on the growth of Michael from a child star into an adult. And then you just have this gigantic gap. And then the next thing that happens is he's being accused of abuse in the Geordie Chandler case because they couldn't cover the huge pinnacle of Michael's career because the estate withheld all of the footage and the music. And somehow, even though David Guest was a 50-50 owner of all of the material from the Madison Square Garden 30th anniversary shows, he and Michael set up a company together to distribute, to film and distribute that concert, and they made a huge amount of money between them from doing that. David Guest was the 50% owner, yet somehow the estate stopped him from using even that footage in his documentary. He was the brains behind that whole 30th anniversary show. He pitched it to Michael, he brought it to fruition, he conceived the company that they set up to distribute it, to sell the rights, to broadcast it all over the world. So they sold it to territory after territory. You know, they made a fortune from the licensing of that concert. Made millions and millions of dollars for Michael. And then he makes a documentary as a tribute to Michael, after Michael dies, and they don't let him use the footage which it only mm. exists because of David Guest in the first place. It was just, it seemed petty to me, to be honest, that they wouldn't help David out. Because, again, what he was doing was, was hugely beneficial to everything that they want to do. So why would yeah. you seek yeah. to sabotage it? It was very strange. Now, the other thing about Hamid that's really quite interesting is, like, when you walk into his studio, the whole studio is like a tribute to Michael. It's like a shrine to Michael. There's just photographs everywhere, spectacular photographs that he took of Michael. You know, considering the era when he worked for Michael, which was when Michael did not really look great, to be honest, most of the time, he does have some really great pictures, some really atmospheric pictures from the You Rock My World video, great silhouettes, great great poses by Michael. They're, they're blown up enormous, you know, enormous sizes and they just line the walls of this studio that he works in. When I was talking to Hamid, the thing that struck me was he absolutely loves Michael, absolutely loves him. He was called as a prosecution witness in the 2005 trial, and he was just furious about it. You know, when he heard that Taj was making this documentary, he was like, yeah, I'll be in it. You know, you know when do you want me kind of thing, because... He got arrested. His door was smashed in by the police and they dragged him outside in his underwear and handcuffed him. And he was like, what's going on? And he said the police told him, we'll tell you what's going on. Michael Jackson molested a child. That's what's going on. And he was like, oh, shit, you know, like, oh, my God. Yeah. And he said the way they said it was like he felt like they knew it had happened. And he was like, I can't mm. believe this has happened. And then when he found out what was really going on, when he found out it was about the Arvizos and everything, he was really furious with them. It was like, a, it's like you, you were acting like you had some evidence that this had happened, but it's, it's just bullshit. So he was called as a prosecution witness because he was subpoenaed, but 
he did not believe in any way that Michael had done anything to the Alvisos, and he still doesn't believe it. And he still is very resolute in his defense of Michael, absolutely doesn't buy it at all. So he became a great ally for Taj, and hopefully will remain attached to Taj's documentary in some way uh, as it moves forward. Okay, so then I'm I'm guessing after Hamid and when and going to his house, <clears throat> you started to work with Taj, really around capturing some interviews. I suppose before the whole coronavirus pandemic hit, were you able to secure any interviews at all? So I obviously my time in Los Angeles was limited, and the only interview that I was present for was the first interview, which was done for the entire documentary. And that interview was with Tom Mesero. And in fact, I not only was present, but I conducted the interview. Now, Tom was extremely generous. Uh, so Tom, you know, what you have to understand about Tom Mesero is Tom is one of the most sought after lawyers. You know, he's very, very famous. I don't know what he charges. I, I'm, I'm not claiming to know what Tom Mesero charges. Uh, I don't know. And of course, he does a lot of pro bono work. But he he could easily charge $500 an hour as a lawyer. And nobody would bat an eyelid because he is an exceptional lawyer. And so the fact that Tom Mesero gives up his time so freely to defend Michael to this day does not ask for a cent, not a cent. It, it really speaks to his belief in Michael. And it's, you know, it really, it does annoy me a lot when I see people online, you know, people that hate Michael Jackson, who are, and even Dan Reed, people like Dan Reed, sort of suggesting that Tom Mesero is like this hotshot, high-flying, high-earning lawyer who's making a fortune out of defending Michael. Tom has spent the last 15 years defending Michael at any opportunity he gets for absolutely nothing. And for Tom to give up a day, a whole day, which is what he did for us to come and film him, and in fact he offered us two days, uh, but we only ended up using one for nothing, that represents in Tom's world potentially thousands of dollars that he has lost by giving up his day to be with us, to take part in this documentary. And he offered us two days. Now, we only had one. This is interesting, okay? So, there's a guy that used to hang out with Michael as a kid called Johnny Spence. You've heard of Johnny Spence, right? So, Johnny Spence was one of Michael's little friends when he was at Havenhurst, when he was still living at Havenhurst, and he lived in the neighbourhood somewhere. Johnny Spence remains to this day Taj Jackson's best friend. And the haters, these people, these like mad troll people who just devote their entire lives to trolling Michael Jackson and his fans on Twitter, they constantly talk about, you know, these they always go about the, the parade of young boys and other victims and Johnny Spence and blah blah blah. And Wade Robson and his lawyers have been suggesting that Johnny Spence was a victim in their court filings. Johnny Spence Johnny Spence is, is very good friends with Taj Jackson. His wife is a very successful director of photography in Hollywood who works on extremely big, lucrative projects. And 
Johnny Spencer's wife was there working pro bono as our director of photography for Taj's documentary. So you have not only Tom Mesero giving up potentially thousands of dollars to come and be involved in Taj's documentary, but also Johnny's wife as a DP giving up potentially a thousand or I don't know how much she makes a day, but she, she I would imagine she makes a lot because she's very successful and very respected for what she does. That's the curious thing is, you know, there's always this suggestion of an ongoing financial relationship. That's always what they use to try to discredit people. Or, of course, Tom Mesero would continue to defend Michael. It's all money, you know, or of course, Johnny Spence would continue to defend Michael if he's still riding the Michael gravy train. It's like, no, these people are not making money. They're giving up money. They're giving up money to come and help with this project. And so we spent a day in Tom's office. He gave us complete free reign of his office. We moved all of his furniture around to make the shot look better. <laughs> and uh, we shot a, quite a long interview with Tom in his office with Johnny's wife as the DP, Taj as the director, and me as the interviewer. That was a great day. You know, it was a long day, uh, in, a, in some ways a difficult day, because it was our first day of shooting. So there are decisions being made in that moment about what kind of lenses do we want to use? What kind of lighting do we want to use? What kind of ambience do we want to filter, etc., etc. So... And whatever decision you make in terms of the Tom Mesero interview, that has now created the look for your documentary, which you're going to have to stick to for the rest of the whole project. So there was a lot of technical goings on, which are completely beyond my comprehension. I just have absolutely no idea about any of it. No idea. So there was a lot of sitting around for me doing nothing. <laughs> but um but yeah it was a it was a a great day you know and tom as ever was very generous with his time and and was uh and was fantastic and you know that's why i like tom because he's he's he is a fundamentally a very good person a really really good decent person and uh i like him a lot it really does the one you know with the the troll idiots I can ignore most of what they say because they're just morons, but when they start attacking Tom, it really does cheese me off because nothing could be further from the truth. He is such a fundamentally good, kind, decent, honest, principled person, and he was great. But in terms of interviews that, that have been shot, the only thing that I was present for was Tom Mesero, which was the first thing unless you count me and Taj faffing about in his studio his home studio trying out lenses and figuring out equipment and sound stuff you know <laughs> so there's some footage somewhere of us of us sort of gooning about in his uh in his studio but the first thing Taj shot was was Tom Mesero all right so you finished your Tom Mesero interview things seem to be going along smoothly with the documentary what happens next as i say i was in los angeles for a couple of weeks um i ended up going to james bourne's house for a day i spent a couple of days hanging out with tom and with taj a day hanging out with danny Wu, and then the other thing i did that was quite interesting was i went to court for one of the hearings in the hbo trial 
where the estate is suing HBO for breach of contract. I went downtown to Los Angeles to the courthouse, which was a lot ritzier than any courthouse I've ever been to in the UK. I've got to say, it was like ridiculous. This court, like the whole building seems to be made of marble. It's a spectacular building. Mm. Yeah, so I went to that hearing. So again, I bump into Howard Weitzman. Jonathan Steen Sapir is there. Uh, Friedman, who was the Casio's lawyer in the Casio lawsuit, is now working for the estate in the HBO lawsuit. He was there. So I watched all of these legal arguments where it was the hearing where basically the judge said that he, he granted HBO leave to appeal I mean, it's just such a convoluted story. I'm not going to recount the whole legal thing, but the estate is suing HBO for breach of contract over non-disparagement because when Michael agreed in 92 to let them film the Bucharest concert, there was a clause in the contract that said HBO agreed to a non-disparagement clause, which basically said you're entering into an agreement with Michael Jackson. You agree that you will not denigrate Michael Jackson. Now, HBO's argument is, well, clearly that contract is null and void. It was so many years ago. It's like 30 years ago. That's ridiculous. And the estate's position is, well, the same contract had a copyright clause in it. Are you now breaching the copyright on that concert every day? I don't think you are. So if you consider that the copyright section of that contract is still valid, then why would you not consider that the non-disparagement section of the same contract is still valid you know if there's no time limit where the copyright ends and you can just start playing it 24 7 then why would the non-disparagement end it's the same contract so the judge had initially sided with the estate and agreed that the case could be sent to arbitration so the the estate is arguing that it wants public arbitration over the merits of leaving neverland they're saying that it's not journalism it's a hit job HBO is saying it's protected journalism, you know, freedom of speech, whatever. The hearing that I was at was the one where the judge basically said, okay, you can appeal it, said to HBO, I'm, I'm rowing back on my original position and I'm going to let you take it to the Court of Appeal. It was basically the judge chickening out and saying, you know, I've ruled in accordance with the law, but I don't want this hot potato anymore, so I'm just kicking it over to the appeals court and it can be their fucking problem from now on. That was basically what was happening. So it was um, an interesting little window into the legal situation that was going on over there, but nothing earth-shattering. You know, it was only like a half-hour hearing or something. And then I bumped into a fan there called Gigi, who I'd met somewhere else. I can't remember where I met her initially, but she might have been at the Geordie Chandler play uh, she said, hey, have you ever been to that dangerous mural? You know, downtown LA somewhere. Don't ask me where because I don't know where we went. But there's this huge wall with Michael's eyes from the dangerous cover painted on it. And so we went down there. We went and looked at that. We went to the Thriller house, you know, from the, the house from the Thriller video. Mm -hmm. We just went on a kind of a, like a, a little MJ sightseeing afternoon <laughs> after oh, court because we both had nothing to do. Yeah, those eyes you're describing, the artwork, Maria Polberg-Masoga, who was on the History Roundtable, she often puts photos of that on Instagram and references that as one of her favorite places in LA. So very beautiful. Yeah, I don't know where it was. It looked like a kind of a, 
a rundown area, to be honest. But it was like it's down a back street somewhere. It's in like a weird car lot or something, car parking lot. I don't really know where we were, to be perfectly honest. But it's somewhere not far from Skid Row because we drove past mm. Skid Row on our way there. Yeah, it was just a strange little place, really. I don't really know what the point of it is, who did it. You know, it seems to be pretty out of the way, so something you wouldn't necessarily walk past unless you were specifically going to see it. But it was it was cool to see. All right, Charlie, let's take another little break, but this time to talk about the MJ Cast's shop. If you want to support the MJ Cast monetarily, you can do so by heading over to themjcast.com slash shop and choosing from a bunch of our great designs and applying them to all kinds of products. For example, we've currently got five designs in the store. Our MJ Cast Sunset logo, which is our most popular design. Another design which has all nine of our seasonal rotating logos in one spot. And then finally, some great typography style designs in which we've used Helvetica typography to list great MJ related things. For example, all of his solo albums, the Jackson Brothers names, and all the characters from Captain EO. You can apply these great designs to things like t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, travel mugs, phone cases, artworks, and tote bags, plus many, many more things like cloth face masks. All of the manufacturing and distribution is handled by Redbubble, which is a great company that has excellent support as well. All profits generated through the MJCast's shop go to three areas, either show running costs, charity donations, or buying better equipment to further improve our podcast. Promote the MJ cast and Michael Jackson all at the same time. There's nothing quite like the feeling of going out and wearing a cool Michael Jackson t-shirt and people stopping to talk to you about the King of Pop, especially if you're wearing my new favorite design, the one that lists all seven of Michael's solo albums. I've had people stop and want to talk about their favorite MJ album. Great conversation. Don't forget to also share your photos with us when you grab some of our merch. Just send them through to the MJCast at iCloud.com and we'll be sure to use some of your cool pics with our social media advertising for the shop. That's the MJCast.com slash shop. Right, so after your trip, then you started to get involved in a completely other documentary. I don't know if too many people know this, but you're involved in two Michael Jackson documentaries. Yeah, so what happened was... So when I was talking to Hamid at Havenhurst, he was saying, oh, you know, there's another documentary that's being made right now. It's being made for A&E. They're making a four-hour documentary all about the trial for the anniversary of the verdict. And he was saying, which really gave me a bad feeling, he said, yeah, they came to me, they said, oh, it was such an injustice, he should never have gone to trial, we're going to expose how I never should have gone to trial, you know, it's a terrible injustice to Michael, the case was terrible, we're going to tell the truth. I was like, oh my God, this sounds so Martin Bashir, it's unreal. So I was like, oh God, this sounds awful. This sounds like just another leaving Neverland. They're probably going to completely misrepresent what happened at the trial. And anyway, then I get approached, I get a call from Tom Mesereau, in, I think, January, it was either January or February this year, who says uh, he just recommended me for a job. Larry Nimmer was also making a documentary for the anniversary of the verdicts. Of course, June just gone was the 15th anniversary of the, the verdicts in the Michael Jackson trial. 
And so Larry Nimmer also was making a documentary and they were looking for somebody to write it. And so I got hired to write it, which again, great new, you know, I was freelance. It was a few months solid work for me. Uh, I'd been doing other bits and pieces in between. It is basically as a freelance, I, in nine months as a freelance, I only did nine months before I went back to PAYE. So in nine months as a freelance, I doubled my annual salary at the Yellow Advertiser. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> I had an amazing year. And on top of all that, it was like, and and I'm going to LA and, you know, it was just like an insane year. So I work on this Larry Nimmer documentary. Now it started out as a documentary all about the trial. I wrote that documentary if that documentary had been made, it would have been fantastic. I know that sounds really big-headed, but nobody had ever told the trial story properly. Nobody has ever, ever told it properly on film. And I wrote this documentary. And then Larry was like, okay, now I feel like I don't want to make it all about the trial because it might be a bit like um, depressing. It might be a bit too much like this other thing that A&E are doing and it might turn people off. So why don't we make it kind of about the trial, but more the trial set within a context, a wider context of Michael and the media. And so the documentary became about the history of Michael Jackson's treatment by the media, which I then wrote that as well. So I basically wrote two separate documentaries because it changed so much that the new one barely resembles the old one uh, and then after writing it I was filmed for it the really gutting thing is that somehow Larry had wangled that certain people that were going to be interviewed for this documentary would be interviewed at Neverland inside Neverland and I was going to be one of those people that was going to be filmed inside Neverland I was going to be interviewed on the property oh wow and I was supposed to fly out in late March, early April, to film my interview. And of course, coronavirus hit and destroyed the whole thing, destroyed it. So in the end, Larry had to hire a British crew who came to my house and filmed me in my garden, which is not quite Neverland. So that was disappointing. <laughs> and that's that would probably explain <laughs> the the photograph you put up on Twitter of of yeah. you in your garden with all that crew around you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um it was uh you know what a shame but hopefully I'm still maybe another documentary will come around and I'll be able to get in and snoop around Neverland. I would love to poke around. Yeah, so that wasn't to be unfortunately. I don't know what's happened to Larry's documentary because just like the A&E documentary, both of these shows were meant to air on American television in June for the anniversary of the verdicts, and both of them have been significantly waylaid by coronavirus because it is badly affecting people's ability to travel around and interview people and all that kind of stuff. So it's had the same impact, of course, on Taj's documentary. I mean, America... I don't know if it is either number one or number two worst in the world for coronavirus at the moment. Los Angeles is one of the epicenters. Trump is not a lockdown type person. He is a 
let's pretend the virus doesn't exist person. So I don't think, I don't know to what extent Los Angeles is in a lockdown at the moment, but anybody with any brains is not going out. So it's kind of put the blockers on anybody filming anything. So it's badly impacted a, a lot of different projects and, and, you know, Taj's won't be any different than Larry's or than A&E's. You know, everybody's documentaries have been basically put on ice. Because the other thing is that, you know, the idea for Taj's documentary is that it will rebut the allegations. It will tell the other side of the story to the allegations. But it won't be a documentary which is just about the Michael Jackson allegations. His idea is that he, he said that when he watched Leaving Neverland, the thing that struck him about it was how few people are in it. So it's basically just Wade and Jimmy, and then occasional moments where their mothers are on screen or their wives are on screen, that kind of thing. And there's nobody either in the show or really in real life who knows these people who is coming forward and testifying for them. There are far more people who know Wade Robson who are coming forward and saying, I do not believe him, than there are coming forward and saying, we must support Wade. I've known Wade all my life and I definitely believe him. I can't think of anyone that's saying that, apart from his mum and, you know, the people that are directly connected to him. So what Taj wants to do is the exact opposite. He wants as many people on screen as possible and the idea that he's had is, you know, normally in the past when people have made documentaries defending Michael, the idea is you just run off and get, uh, you know, uh, like David Guest did, you know, just get all these old Motown stars and people to come, you know, Bobby Taylor and people like that. But whereas what Taj is saying is, you know, these people, they knew Michael, but they didn't know him, know him. The people that knew him were the people that were with him 12 15 hours a day the people that knew him were his personal assistants his chauffeurs his uh makeup people uh his security guards let's go and get all of these people who were with michael jackson every day day in day out they were in the car with him they were in the hotel room with him they were at neverland with him everywhere he went they were there they saw the people he was around. They saw the way he interacted with people. Let's humanize Michael Jackson and let's show that unlike Leaving Neverland, which is dependent entirely on the uncorroborated stories of two accusers, let's show that the people that knew Michael Jackson do not believe this at all. And we've got an army. We've got an army of people that will defend Michael. People that were with him every day and will come forward and say, this is bullshit. So that's Taj's concept. Unfortunately, because of, because of the age of a lot of these people that we need to speak to, you know, when Michael became famous and became successful, he was quite young. He hired the best of the best. He hired experienced people. So a lot of Michael's staff were older than him, significantly older. A number of them are already dead. And the coronavirus means a lot of the people that are around that we can speak to are considered very vulnerable. So for Taj to go and interview them at the moment would be extremely irresponsible. It has put the blockers on a lot of the filming just in the same way that it's put the blockers on a lot of other people's documentaries. So, 
you know, originally Taj was looking at a release date of this year, but I don't think there's any chance of that happening at all. What the new time schedule is, I, I just have no idea. Yeah. Last question about the documentary. I mean, have you, uh, w- what's your working relationship like with Taj now? Are you guys still communicating and there's still a lot of hope with it, you know, getting back into filming once coronavirus, you know, at some point in the future dissipates? I don't really know what my role is, to be honest, because I've done so much stuff on and off for Taj over the last year, bits and pieces that don't really fall into any category from things like going through all those documents to the day with Hamid to taking Carol Amir out for dinner. You know, there's just so <laughs> so much stuff that that it doesn't really come under any category, to be honest. I suppose just researcher or consultant or whatever you want to call it. But yes, so I, I became like a, I don't know how to describe myself. I'm not really an employee, but I'm I'm a helper to Taj. So Taj is, people keep messaging me and saying, What's going on with the documentary? It's like, I don't, I don't know. Don't ask me, because I'm not the boss. If Taj needs me to do something, he says, hey, Charles, can you do this for me? And I say, yeah, and then I go and do it. But I don't know what Taj is doing, necessarily. So so I'm just kind of there to, as a sort of a consultant, I guess you could call me or whatever. Just if Taj needs me to do something, then I'll do it. That's my role at the moment. and And that's been my role since about... July last year, something like that. I speak to Taj fairly regularly, uh, not always about the documentary. You know, I've known Taj for 10 years and we just have a friendly relationship. As far as I'm aware, Taj is still working on it. He still absolutely plans on it being made and coming out. But just at the moment, there's very little that can be done. You can't write it until you know who's interviewed because the whoever writes the script will be basically threading together all of the interviews that have been filmed into a narrative so you can't script it till you've done the interviews and so we're just dependent on circumstances allowing the filming of those interviews as far as i know it's currently on hold in terms of practical work practical moving forward interviewing people getting things in the pocket um but uh you know my my understanding is that nothing has changed in terms of there's still being a plan to to produce it and bring it out. I'm not working on it right now. No, but that's still very hopeful for uh, for fans. So can't wait for that to come out. And I'm and I'm also sure that that Taj's GoFundMe is still there, so we can still contribute to it to make it the best uh, documentary that we possibly can as a community. Now, Charlie, let's wrap with where you're at now. So since lockdowns come into effect in in London and England. You've also started back in full-time work. Yeah, so I, I, as I explained at the beginning of our conversation, I hate being freelance in some ways because of, because of the three problems. Number one, the difficulty in getting paid. Number two, you have to deal with tax returns. And number three, the lack of stable income. Even though, you know, as I say, I had a very successful period as a freelance very recently if I had still been freelance right now, when coronavirus hit, I would have been absolutely fucked. So my intention was always to go freelance, but get back into PAYE work, pay as you earn, by March. Because March is the end of the tax year. 
So if I'm still freelance by the 15th of April, that instigates a whole another year of tax return bullshit that I have to deal with. So my intention was always to get in, get out, be freelance, but make sure you have a full-time job before the beginning of the new tax year. So you're limiting the the massive fucking headache of a tax return to one year. Um, <laughs> so and luckily, I was asked to apply for a job and I got it. So I'm now working for something called the Archant Investigations Unit, which is a small team of investigative journalists that work for the Archant Newspaper Group. And we basically, our, our remit is we work on investigative stories which then get syndicated to the newspapers within the group. So I don't work, I'm not employed by a particular newspaper, I'm employed by the unit, and then we work on stories and send them to the newspapers within the group. I'm loving it, I'm absolutely loving it. It's just what I love to do, investigative journalism is my bag. So I was really lucky, I sneak. I, I got in just before lockdown. So I was really, really lucky to get out of freelance work and into PAYE just in time for, for the pandemic to hit. Yeah, and, and one of the products that's come out from your work at Archon is your very own podcast, Unfinished, which I was listening to last night and loving. It's, it's beautifully crafted. You've done an excellent job. And I really encourage our listeners to go and listen to that as well. Just before we wrap, talk a little bit about your new podcast. Thank, thank you for that. Um, that well, it's, it's a story that um, I've been working on since 2015, which is that I was in my office at the Yellow Advertiser and a guy walked in off the street and said, I want to talk to Charles Thompson. And, and I took him in the boardroom and he told me the story about a paedophile ring, a historic paedophile ring, which was all covered up by the establishment and the guys never got punished. And I was thinking, God, is this guy nuts? You know, is this because this this could very easily just be a fantasist, but he wasn't a fantasist. It was completely true. And I spent the next five years investigating and digging out stuff about this this terrible, terrible miscarriage of justice where all of these vulnerable children were abused by a paedophile ring. And there were a group of adults, a group of charity workers who worked with these children and we're going to the authorities and we're saying, you need to do something about this. You need to do something about this paedophile ring. We've got all of this evidence. You know, I've, we've got 10 different kids that don't even know each other and they're all telling us the same thing. It's clearly true. And, and the police and the social services and everybody just did absolutely nothing. It's a terrible scandal, a scandal on many, many levels in terms of what turned out to be the likely reason why the police didn't investigate to the failure of social services to look after the kids, which means that a number of them are now dead or have had their lives completely destroyed. It's just a complete and utter travesty from top to bottom. And so this series, Unfinished, it's a cold case podcast that existed uh, that was made by the Archant Investigations Unit anyway, and it just deals with different cases each time it comes out. And previously, it had always focused on unsolved cold murder cases which is why it's called unfinished it's all about you know investigations that began into crimes that never concluded and so when they hired me they knew all about the story because of course it won a lot of awards nationally and 
the unit was up for a lot of the same awards that we got nominated for, so we would bump into each other at the awards ceremonies and stuff. So one of the first things they asked me to do when they hired me was to take this case that I'd worked on and turn it into the new series of Unfinished. It's been great fun. It's been a, a fuckload of work. I was here a real, real headache in terms of workload <laughs> but um it you know i couldn't be happier about it it's it's uh it's turned out great and you know all i can hope is that the right people listen to it and we get some more information coming in because the case uh, you know is not closed yet it's not it's not finished so hopefully some people with with vital bits of the jigsaw will come forward and it's still coming out i think you're up to episode six or something like that at the moment so now's a great time for people to jump in Episode 8, it goes up to number 8, and episode 8 will be out next Friday. Episode number 7 came out today, which is the 31st of July, so the ep- the final episode will be out on the 7th of August. Brilliant. And this is um, a story, obviously, the Shubri pedophile ring is a story you've even won um, national awards for as recently as the previous year. As, well, actually, as recently as May this year, we uh, uh, f- thankfully we picked up another two. We got highly commended weekly reporter of the year, and we got weekly newspaper campaign of the year from the Society of Editors. So as that brought our total to nine, I think nine national awards since two thousand sixteen. So it's been very, it's been a great success for me and for the Yellow Advertiser for the now departed as far as the print newspaper goes the yellow advertiser's gone but i'm so proud that that you know i was able to win all these awards on its behalf because uh it is it did a lot it did a lot for me that newspaper and i loved it so it's, it's a real honor to to be picking these awards up still a year after it cl- in fact the, those two awards we won from the society of editors uh sorry that we won them in june not in may because we won them on the exact one year anniversary to the day of being told the newspaper was closing down we we won those awards and and we won them for the final paper we we wrapped up the shubri story in the final paper and then a year later we won those awards for it so that was great it was gratifying two things i want to say on this the first one is it never ceases to amaze me how not only are you one of the preeminent individuals in the Michael Jackson community that know about the allegations and well you really are the person you are the preeminent person who knows about them who can speak about them with authority who's investigated them for years but you're also somebody who is as your day-to-day job exposing actual pedophiles and cover-ups you know I just think that's incredible it's an incredible story that you have as a person it's very weird and it, it's a huge irritation to the community of very sad individuals who spend their lives trolling Michael Jackson on the internet. It infuriates them. And so they spend all of their time trying to discredit my work on the show. <laughs> so like, so, you know, we've won nine national awards to date and been nominated, for, I think, at least three more than that. And one of those nine that we won was won by public vote. And so their line that they always trot out is, oh, yeah, because he only wins these awards because of uh, he gets MJ stands to vote for him for these awards. It's, it's like, yeah, one out of nine, one out of nine, <laughs> one out of nine was Ridiculous. a public vote. You know, the other eight were awarded by panels of judges. So 
It is so yeah. ridiculous. They it really fucks them off. Those they're so funny in a way. Those people. I, I mean, I recently I resisted blocking them for ten years because I didn't want to give them the satisfaction. But they just got so irritating recently that I just blocked every single one of them. I think is the best thing I ever did. Is is Twitter is a lot more fun without those assholes just sending me stupid comments all day. They're so thick as well. The ones that the ones that are trying to say that the train station was knocked down and then rebuilt. Oh how God. Fucking thick. I mean, they're so thick. It's so like, you know, it, that was completely debunked so long ago because one of the fans contacted the photographer that took that picture for the AP, the picture that the haters say was of the original train station that was then knocked down. And they said, can you confirm the date that you took this picture? And Bernstein said, I can't tell you the date that I took the picture, but what I can tell you is this. I didn't take that job until November 1993, and I didn't live in Los Angeles until I took that job. So the earliest I can have taken that picture for the AP is November 1993. <laughs> so there's absolutely no way. It's impossible, physically impossible for that picture to have been taken any earlier than November 1993. And the same fan contacted the AP and asked them to confirm whether the date was correct. And they came back and said, yes, the date that we say this picture was taken is November 1993. And yet these imbeciles on Twitter, they still insist that this picture shows a previous train station from before 1994. It's like, how is that possible? It's not possible. You know from the photographer that it's not possible. They're so thick. They just, uh, oh my God, they infuriate me. And I'm so glad I blocked them all. Absolute idiots. It's so desperate. <laughs> the desperation is, is ridiculous. Oh, it's hilarious. You know, it's, hilarious, hilarious. The second thing I wanted to ask you was, you mentioned earlier that you hate wearing suits, but when you go to collect all these awards, what else do you wear? I never wear a suit. I always wear what I would wear if I was going to work any other day, which is a pair of cargo trousers, a white t-shirt, a plaid shirt, and a pair of like carry more type walking shoes. That's it's my uniform for work. You know, I, I have deep suspicion of any journalist in a suit. To me, it's like a form of Stockholm syndrome. So, you know, journalism is like warfare almost because you have the establishment who hate journalists and don't want them to find any information out. And then you have the journalists who represent the people. You are acting on behalf of the people and you're doing battle with the establishment to find the truth and bring it back to the people. That's what journalism is. Journalists in suits just freak me out. I just find them deeply suspicious and frightening because they're. <laughs> it's like, why are you wearing the uniform of the enemy? So I find them very weird and I don't get it. And I've never worn a suit for work and uh, unless I'm going to a funeral. That's the only exception. If I'm going to cover somebody's funeral, as I have had to do a couple of times, you know, like people that have been killed in road accidents or things like that, then I'll put a suit on. But for day-to-day -day work, I think any journalist in a suit is deeply, is highly suspect. Charlie, hearing your adventure over the past year or year and a half has just been absolutely amazing. I've heard about it as it's been happening through our texting, but to get it all in one place is just brilliant. And I can't wait to hear where the adventure goes in the future. Thanks for joining me again. Where can listeners find you 
online and where can listeners go to hear your podcast as well? Uh, you can find me online on Twitter at C.E. Thompson. That's Thompson without a P. And um, to find the podcast, if you go to podfollow forward slash unfinished dash one, then that will take you to uh, the audio boom page where you can click a link and it will take you to the right place to subscribe, whichever whichever your podcast service of choice is. Um, but it's available everywhere. It's available on iTunes and on Spotify and everywhere you can think of. So just check it out. Just search for Unfinished um, by Eastern Daily Press and it will come up. Thanks, Charlie. Listeners can also contact us on our social media at the MJCast on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. If people want to email us, they can reach us at themjcast at icloud.com. And if people want to subscribe to our podcast, we'd absolutely love that. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts. Just search The MJCast. You can stream our shows and find lots of our op-ed articles over at themjcast.com. And of course, we're on YouTube as well. Thank you so much to our listeners who have supported us through all the years of doing the MJ cast. I received a really great um, message last night actually from a listener over in Vietnam. Uh, his name's Ali Garacholo. I probably butchered that that surname, but he's actually from Iran and he's currently living in Vietnam working in a hair salon and he uh, he was telling me how much he loves listening to the show. Uh, you know, while he's at work and everything. So <laughs> shout out to Ali. Uh, and, and I just want everyone to know that I appreciate so much everybody who listens to our show and, and also communicates with us through email or wherever. It's really touching every time we receive a little message from somebody somewhere in the world enjoying the MJ cast. All right. Well, that is a wrap, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been great. just trying to think what else i can tell you about the properties but there's not much really i mean i've been to taj's house many times the view is spectacular i'm not going to say where it is of course but from taj's front driveway so you walk outside taj's front door and you just have this panoramic view of this valley surrounded by mountains in in los angeles it's spectacular my favorite part of taj's house is his driveway <laughs> Because the view is just, the view is amazing. His driveway and his coffee maker. His wife, Tiana, had bought this coffee maker thing. I don't ask me what it is, I don't know. But it makes the most amazing chocolate coffee drinks. I just hoover them up when I'm around Taj's house. They're amazing. <laughs> so for uh, American listeners, hoover means vacuum. Vacuum. The brand of yes. vacuum cleaner that is used <laughs> instead of the word vacuum. Same in Australia, actually.